afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are listening to this. This is not Dave Kale introducing the Silmarillion Project. This is Trish Lambert because Dave unfortunately can't be with us today. But all I have to say about today is <laughs> because we're going to be finishing up the evildoers at That's this portion right. of our show so uh so i'm looking forward to this i was telling Corey that you know i, I always am concerned y'all may have noticed if you've ever listened to the to the series that i'm always like what about the bad guys what about the bad guys right. and i think the reason for that is that i think it could be really easy for us to forget about those guys because you know we get into the good guy story and stuff and i just worry that like somewhere down the line we're gonna end up with cardboard cutout evil guys yes. so we're not going to do that right we're committed That's to right. not doing that so cory olson the token professor is going <laughs> to lead us in a discussion of bad dudes. That's right. Because, yeah, we did so much good work in season one with Morgoth and Sauron, and then in season we two did. with we Sauron. Really, we really crafted that whole story of how they became how they became and stuff like that, and yeah. we need to kind of continue that <clears throat> level of commitment. It was definitely my favorite element of season one, was really thinking through a good explanation, a good story about mm-hmm. Morgoth's fall, which mm-hmm. you know, happened. We get, I mean, what we get in the Aina Lindale is very interesting mm-hmm. um, but it's not exactly a narrative. I mean, it is a narrative, but it's not a, it's not, it's not a Morgoth narrative, right? You know, we, we, we sort right. of see him already falling. We, we, we see his fall dramatized in the uh, in the music. Um, but really kind of trying to understand him as a character. Um, I, I, that was, it was, I was, as I say, my favorite part about season one, and I don't want to lose sight of him. It's hard because Morgoth himself is getting, like, he's diminishing, right? So having him become sort of more shallow is, is a little bit okay, but we want, we need to be in control of that, right? We need to make sure that we're really conveying. Well, see, I think that's part of the challenge too. You know, I was just going to say, it's like Tolkien Actually, Tolkien kind of makes him a cardboard cutout, right? Well, yeah. It's like from the moment he goes bad, he's like, okay, now he's bad. Boom. You right. know, that's it. Right. And you don't – it just is like he's, he stays static for basically the rest of the – and he's very predictable. Inter- and so I think it's even more challenging now because we don't have any real depth from the source material. Exactly. And, but, you know, I think we need to not have him be um, – I think the showing of the shallowness. How do we do? That's kind of a good question. How do we yeah. show that? Yeah. How do we show you know? that? And and I think one clear answer to this is through Sauron, right? Through the yes. through yes. the clandestine protagonist of our entire uh, show, right? You know, the mm-hmm. one character mm-hmm. who will bind season one through season twenty five or wherever we end um, is Sauron, right? It's so Sauron. Uh, yeah. so having him be the one, and I, I think. Because at this point, Sauron is still far enough upstream from Morgoth on that path down into the void, right? That we can right. st- we can still use contrast between Sauron and Morgoth, both to right. show um, how far gone Morgoth is by comparison, but also to like prefigure where Sauron is headed. Even have him at some point become aware of this and worry about it, like to. You know, to have him looking at Morgoth and saying, like, man, I don't want to go this way, right? I don't want this. I don't want yeah. to let this happen to me. I don't want to do this. Yeah, so this that when me. he so so that we have a new layer of tragedy with Sauron, right? We have we, yep. we, we had his first tragedy when he uh, turned. Right. Mm-hmm. And to have a further le- level of tragedy when he becomes, you know, the sort of, you know, uh, maniacal monster that Morgoth is slowly turning into, mm-hmm. um, which mm-hmm. he had resolved never to be. 
um, you know, we, we, so that the final ending of Sauron, uh, you know, as when his ring is destroyed and he's off in the wilderness, um, uh, and the sadness is he even he even he even ends up being kind of Morgoth light even right. at that point. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Well, I have a question, and I because I kind of been in and out as you know, so so I've missed some of the conversations. Have we ever talked about? Do we think that Sauron honestly, truly, really stays absolutely loyal to Morgoth, even no. past the void? Okay. No, do you think I he's don't. using him for his own? purposes basically like yes. i'm thinking the numenor yeah. thing is not that he really believed morgoth was but he, yes. but because he could, he didn't want them to uh worship him he was using morgoth as the exactly you know what i mean it's and, like and, okay uh, yeah so i mean the the, the way the, looking for and of course this is looking a good ways forward but i think it is relevant in the shorter term as well i do too i do as, too it means where we need to begin i was gonna to say we need to start to out. plant the seeds yeah. and yeah so here's my thought about he will know he will know that morgoth morgoth is never going to become a non-entity Right. He's always right. going to be there and he's always going to be powerful. Uh, you know, and he's not he's going to be less powerful than he was. But that's a long ways to fall. Right. He is still mm-hmm. always going to be more and more powerful. My thought with Sauron is that Sauron is. Well, loyal isn't the right word. He's not loyal because loyal suggests that the loyalty oh, itself <laughs> yeah, is is like a, a virtue, a principle. Right. Right. Um, he follows Morgoth because he is. Con- I mean, he has been converted to it. yeah to Morgoth's yeah. like doctrine of you know being strong right. and controlling and ordering things yourself. Um, and he believes in Morgoth's vision for that and in supporting Morgoth's vision for that. But as Morgoth declines over the seasons, he is going to I think more and more begin scheming for himself. Um, Sauron is. And I think especially after Morgoth's banishment, after the War of Wrath, he's going to perceive Morgoth's influence still present in the world, right? And I think that his goal at that point would be not to be serving Morgoth, not trying to help Morgoth, but trying to harness it, right? To use Morgoth as like a power source, in some sense, like if he can manipulate the power of Morgoth in the world, then he can thereby increase his own power. Like he's in charge. Like he would oh, see yeah, himself yeah. as in charge. So he would see himself oh. as Morgoth's heir, essentially, still also making use of Morgoth's power. So in a right. sense, he's trying to carry on the work of Morgoth, but again, not for Morgoth's sake. But not for Morgoth's sake, yeah. Uh, but he- well, here's here's a little thing to, that I'm thinking we need to put a pin in, of course. Um, but Marie, maybe if 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 we're getting a good um, response from Corey on this, War of Wrath, could it be? Could we actually have Sauron somehow, either directly or indirectly, bringing about Morgoth's capture? Mm. Yeah, do we see him turn his coat? Well, because he starts the, to think about the fact that yeah. Morgoth's going doing this wrong. I could do it better. I think of what would happen if he wasn't here. I'd have you know access yep. to all of his yep. bloody bloodies yep. and G. And then yep. he sticks his foot out, so Morgoth trips over it as Morgoth walks. <laughs> or by. even, I mean, of course, the most noteworthy thing about Sauron in the second half of the Silmarillion is his complete absence. Right after the Baron and Luthien mm-hmm. story, he's gone, and there's no reference to him ever again <laughs> until the Numenor story. Um, you know, until after the War of Wrath. So at the very least, a sort of strategic withdrawal, I think, mm-hmm. uh, would be the way to uh, would be the way to play that. Um, 
Yeah, uh, and I could see him actually at the end, like at the end of War of Wrath, maybe a little soliloquy of this is time to consolidate, you know, I'm going to, you know, get my, you know, get my power together, maybe even travel some, <laughs> you know. Right. Now, so, I mean, so that kind of explains why we don't see him maybe or something. Maybe travel so I like that. there's so many maybe places in Middle Earth I haven't seen. Go to the Bahamas. Um, exactly, yeah. right. Um but uh <laughs> but yeah, I mean I would want to tr- I mean I'd 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 want to think carefully about that passage that says that Sauron repented or and perhaps at first it was genuine. Um I I'd be interested to see how we could play that. But I do think uh, at least before that, mm-hmm. um his uh his plan A when the war begins. Um, I think that he will be looking at Morgoth and saying, like, on the one hand, Morgoth has almost conquered all of Middle-earth, so that's kind of good. But on the other hand, you know, the guy's like a shell of himself, right? You know, yeah. Like, this is yeah. Not... It's like he's got he's – got, uh, he's going senile. Exactly. A, a bad this guy. Is, this is, this is something – like, he now needs to be managed rather than assisted, right? His vision – he's no longer able really – to be able to achieve his vision, not with any nuance, right? He's just smashing stuff at this point. And, right. Uh, and I, Sauron, you know, Sauron, I have a more delicate hand and, and it w- would, things would really be better off in my hands. So, um, uh, anyway, uh, I, 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 anyway, I, 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 well, I, I do think I, that's I do worth having a little chat Morgan. about. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I do too. I in, in a very, idea. but not an overt way. No, in a very covert no. way. Yes. Um, but I do think that's good to know we're kind of where we're headed because those seeds have to be planted. That development needs to be seen. You yes. know, there needs to be some some conversations or some facial expressions at least. You know, the very the beginning, Sauron's yes, part. the very beginning of it. I think that the first sign of that schism that we're discussing here should be at the moment that we had uh, last season in season three when Morgoth took over the Orc project with a you know, steel fist, right? When he oh, took yeah, the yeah, suddenly yeah. twisted right. like dark elves that Sauron had been trying to build mm-hmm. and just twisted them into, you know, sort of physically right. and spiritually monstrous bruisers, uh, which are the orcs. Um, Sauron would find that repugnant, right? Like, you right. know, he's just, he's, right. he's just, he just wrecked it, right? I was trying right. to do this subtle, interesting thing, which would have given us way more capability um, right. And he's and he it, so this sense of Sauron seeing himself as sort of tactically, if not strategically, superior to Morgoth. Morgoth's hatred and anger and pain already beginning. I mean, the, so the 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 gap wouldn't be wide, but I think that that would be the first glimpse of it that we could give. And you know, that's so Sauron because it's exactly the same thing he did in in in, in uh, Valinor. Mm-hmm. You know, oh better i could this could be but we could do it this i mean it's just right. it's just it's the same mechanism right now he's now it's like where he is now so it's perfect yeah yeah i think that that would work really well and we'll have opportunities we'll get back to this in a little bit um but because we're gonna the fall of men which is what we want to focus on first uh so the the, the next thing we want to talk about here today um, is going to be probably there's at least going to be discussion between Morgoth and Sauron. And so we'll have an opportunity to have mm. the two of them interacting. Uh, and so mm-hmm. we can possibly be thinking about that uh, there as well. So we'll get some opportunities to kind of, we don't want to move it forward too fast because we've got many years before this is going to happen. Sauron is right. going to remain. I mean, Morgoth is not declining that fast. Right. So right. Um, uh, we still need to show that he is in, 
charge of his faculties. But if we that might be a really good way. We were talking last time. One of the questions we were you know sort of leaving with was how do we show Morgoth's decline? Maybe we don't yet really show it. It's not obvious yet, but we just have Sauron notice Sauron one notice right yeah um you know it could just be a few lines in dialogue between him and Thorin Gwethel where he's uncertain mm-hmm. about what is happening to Morgoth and w- where what trajectory Morgoth is on here right so the and then a lot of the first one to raise the question. questions behind yeah. Morgoth's back <laughs> exactly <laughs> once he said that to Thorin Gwethel then it's like all facial expressions right exactly <laughs> exactly um and so it's through their suspicions and uncertainties um, about Morgoth uh, that um, and we can have I mean I think we could even have moments where Sauron kind of oversteps himself and Morgoth squashes him you know to showing that like he's not in fact all that declined yet you know and yeah, we can, yeah, yeah. We can show that True. he's yeah. he's still at least as cunning as Sauron is and everything um, but well, yeah, I do think that you know when thinking. we get to the end of the after the Luthien confrontation, I think uh, we'll need to do kind of a wither Sauron chat. Absolutely, yeah. You know? no, when I said travel, question. actually, I wasn't being facetious. I, I, what I was thinking in my head was he would want to travel like right. to Herod and to play, you know, to like start to recruit and you know get those people on his side, kind of thing. Because that didn't happen overnight, right? You know, right. so you know, you figure right. that's so those are the years that he's spending because. Don't those? I mean, I would, would. Those people would become also. I would assume uh, elements, you know, in his next rising. I mean, before the last alliance battle, you know, yeah. The next no, it, he, you're right. I mean, so. there's a reason why the Easterlings are all prepared to his hand, right, when he mm-hmm, sits mm-hmm. up uh, in Mordor, um, and oh. why he positions himself where he does. In apart from the handy volcano. Um, there's, there's, I mean, that, I know, like, that's why that particular area was chosen, but, um, but more it, it's, it is the Western frontier of the right. lands where right. his dominion is most solid. Right. Um, right. which means again, I think this brings us back to Hildorian and the corruption of men. Um, yep. because which I, is a great place. I think we're to... going to want to. Yeah, trace that. Because I think if we do this right, then we don't even have to really do it again. But it, but like, we'll have that in our memories when we know he's going off and doing it. We just it's a repeat. You know, yes. he's just doing it multiple times. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Agreed. Um, well, I'll bring us back to the present now. <laughs> yeah. So coming back to the present, actually coming back absolutely to the present uh, and slightly into the future. Uh, uh, announcements, quick before I forget. Uh, as I am prone to do once I get drawn into things. So just oh, quick yeah, reminder about, about the upcoming. No, no, no. This is that's all good. Um, uh, quick reminder about the upcoming events uh, that are happening. We've got Sunshine Moot in Orlando on March 23rd. So that's coming up soon. Now we're almost a month away from Orlando Moot. So uh, getting some registrations in for that, which is awesome. So if you are in the Florida area and want to join us for Sunshine Moot, uh, please uh, uh, please do. Uh, we've got Nader Moot. In the Netherlands, in Leiden, in the Netherlands on April 13th. So this is our European moot for this year. We did London moot last year. We're doing Nader moot this year. So we're, we were, on, we were in, uh, in, in England last year. We'll be on the continent this year, um, uh, So which I'm super excited about. I've never been to the Netherlands before, so I, I can't wait to join folks. And just a note there, uh, their call for papers goes through March 3rd. So that's actually coming up fairly soon. So... Uh, if you'd like to come to Nadermit, which I hope you will, uh, if you have any suggestions for a discussion topic or a presentation you might want to give, uh, please look at the uh, the, the webpage there to um, 
uh, uh, suggest something there. And then finally, Mythmoot 6, which is happening at the end of June. The early bird pricing ends on March 4th, so we want to draw that to your attention. Um, uh, the the the, so the prices will jump up a little bit after March fourth, so now is the time to get on that. You got a you got a, about a week and a half uh, for that. Um, and just to also draw your attention to something cool there, um, this is the uh, MythMoot page, signumuniversity.org/mythmoot, and we have a couple new special guests that we are announcing. We have Diana Glyer, who's the author of. Uh, Bandersnatch and the company they keep. She's a wonderful Inkling scholar uh, and has spent a lot of time talking about uh, talking and writing about uh, the Inklings in community. The Inklings as a kind of writers group and how they uh, played off each other. She's done wonderful work uh, on the Inklings. Uh, Katie McDaniel is also joining us. She's a Harry Potter scholar uh, and the host of the Reading Writing Rolling podcast. Um, she's uh, she is awesome. So if you uh, interested in talking about Harry Potter stuff, she's going to be coming in giving a Potter talk. Uh, and she'll be there with us this week. Uh, Jacob Rogers is also coming to join us, and he is the writer of the One Ring role-playing game, uh, the tabletop role-playing system, which does the best job of adapting the mechanics of the One Ring role-playing system. Uh, most intriguingly, they, they reflect Tolkien's world more intriguingly than any other role-playing system I've ever seen. I love Lotro. Lotro does a fantastic job with Tolkien's world and Tolkien's narrative, You've, if you're, you know, Lotro people have probably heard me before say that, you know, the 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 biggest reservation I have with Lotro as an adaptation is that it still kind of uses a a fairly default kind of combat gaming system, right, and and sort of structure. Within that framework, it does a wonderful, wonderful job uh, of adapting Tolkien's world and of being true to Tolkien's uh, world. The One Ring role-playing game does go one step further back, and all of the mechanics of the world are really thinking about Tolkien's world um, uh, in ways which I find really, really fascinating. So anyway, so Jacob Rogers is going to be there, and he's going to be talking about uh, his role-playing system and adapting Tolkien, and uh, it's going to be super cool. So anyhow, those are our new special guests. Wanted to draw your attention here to the call for papers as well as the registration link. Everything is available here so that you can see what's going on at MythMoot. So, um, really cool stuff. Just wanted to uh, uh, draw your attention to all of that upcoming fun stuff. Okay, so let's get back to the bad guys. Um, here's the outline of what we're going to talk about or what we're going to hope to talk about here today. Uh, the, uh, the fall of men in Hildorian and the creation of dragons. So there were three major things that the bad guys are up to in this season that we wanted to, uh, to talk about. One is the capture and release uh, elf program, which we discussed last time. Uh, and I thought we made a lot of good progress with that. Oh, and by the way, there was a dis- uh, on that subject, one last small note. There was a, uh, a suggestion on the discussion boards um, about uh, who c- remember we we had we were suggesting Rog of Gondolin or Rog eventually of Gondolin uh, for the dude who escapes under his own power. Uh, we were suggesting Anil, uh, the Sindar of Hithlum, who will end up being Tuor's foster father as the inadvertent traitor, right? Who then puts himself into uh, sort of voluntary exile, and we were suggesting. Blanking on her name, Angrod's wife, um, totally blanking on her name, sorry, um, for the one who is uh, 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 the uh, whose will is 
crushed. Elder Latte, thank you. Um, uh, the, the one whose will is crushed and who uh, becomes or almost becomes uh, a, a, a sort of unwilling traitor uh, to the cause. What we did not have was a nominee for the person who gets captured and doesn't ever escape. We were thinking about the possibility of using um, uh, 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 oh wait, who are we thinking of? Um, we're thinking about the, yeah, she was the one who's put under the spell of bottomless dread. Um, that's right. That's right. Um, Anyway, so we had some suggestions for who gets imprisoned. The suggestion on the discussion board, um, and Marie, you'll correct me if I'm wrong about this, was uh, uh, Kurofin's wife, which I think is a fascinating idea. I love the idea of having Kurofin undergoing like uh, grief that can kind of humanize him for the audience so that he's not just the scheming evil guy. I mean, he's still the scheming evil guy, um, but he's also... Uh, scheming evil guy uh, who has like suffered a legitimate grief and whose grief we can have compassion with even while we still see that he's a scheming evil guy. Um, it also gives Celebrimbor a, a tragedy. I mean, like the witch and doesn't have a tragedy in his experience, but uh, you know, it has <laughs> a more sort of personal tragedy there. Um, uh, so, and, and of course it also gives us a way to have, a Feanorian craftsman in the service, unwilling slave service uh, of Morgoth, which of course is good because you'll remember when Gwyndor shows up, um, when uh, Turin meets Gwyndor after Gwyndor has escaped uh, from the mines where the Noldor are being forced, the captured Noldor are being forced to work. In the original version, uh, that is in the alliterative Children of Hurin, Gwyndor is carrying one of the blue Feanorian lamps. Like, he's escaped with one of the blue Feanorian lamps. Um, I, which I think would be fine to do. Um, I don't think it gets... I don't believe... It's one problem about reading all the other earlier versions. I can't remember anymore if that gets mentioned in the published Silmarillion, but I don't think it does. Um, but I see no reason not to not to keep that detail. But that would give us um, that would give us an uninteresting um, uh, uninteresting connection, right? Um, if we have Celebrimbor, if we have Celebrimbor's wife getting captured, we can have a scene where she is being made to make Feanorian lamps, uh, for, you know, to sort of give the secret of the Feanorian lamps uh, uh, to Morgoth. Um, the, she would make an excellent source for that, right? That makes all kinds of sense. So I really like that. Um, so yeah, I'm totally down with Kel- with Celebrimbor's mom being the one, uh, you know, one who is captured and who who doesn't uh, escape from Angband. Because um, as I said, we can actually have a func- a function of her uh, of her captivity. Um, she would be one, you know, uh, uh, Kurfin isn't gonna. Uh, marry some schmo, right? She's going to also be an excellent craftsman uh, uh, and so craftsperson, so she would uh, um, uh, be put to horrible uses uh, by Morgoth, which is great. Um, so yeah, thanks. Oh, so the, Okay, so the, this was a suggestion on the discussion boards by somebody with lots of numbers in their name, which makes it really hard to say. I think I don't even know how to say that. Angie, maybe something or other with fours and fives. Anyway, thank you, Angie, with fours and fives uh, for that suggestion. I think that's a brilliant suggestion.
Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, maybe that's what that is. Angel eyes. Possibly. Is that how it's... Is a four supposed to be a Y? Okay. All right. I guess I can... Got it. All right. Angel eyes, then, if that's what that translates to in number speak. Um, uh, yeah. Well, anyway, but I'll thank you for that. That was, uh, that was very... Uh, uh, that was very cool. Um, good suggestion. So, okay, so so we're down with that. We still need to think about how this interacts with the other plots, but we'll come back to that after we do the other plots. So let's talk about the fall of men in Hildorian. Now, here's the main thing here is that this is going to happen largely off screen, right? We need to figure this out, but we're not planning to do a sequence of the fall of Hildorian Um but we want to know what happened. We, and we need to know what has happened for a couple different reasons. One, we need to know so that we can know the movements of the bad guys, right? Um, uh, Morgoth and possibly Sauron are both involved. Uh, at least Morgoth, we know, is involved in the Fall of Men, which means there's got to be a chunk of time when he's not there, uh, when he's not present up there in the north. Um, which, so obviously we need to incorporate that into the story. Um, is Sauron going to be there too? In which case we need to get his absence incorporated into the story as well. We need to talk about it enough. At the very least, we need to have a little bit of exposition, right? So that um, people are prepared for, like our viewers are prepared for this, right? To know, because we teased the the awakening of men at the end of season three, Um we will want to kind of check in on that in some way. The arrival of men in season five should be a bit of a surprise. It will certainly be a surprise to the elves, but I, we can't let people forget about it entirely either. So that's another reason that we need to, um, uh, uh, another reason that we need to, uh, uh, think that through. Um, Oh, wow. Marie, and I was an unpopular suggestion. Are you kidding? He seems like the perfect candidate for me. What's wrong with that suggestion? And he's got nothing else to do until he's towards uh step uh, father. And that's like ages in the future. Okay. Not ages, but you know, centuries in the future. Uh, Oh man. Okay. Anyway. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, no, Marielle, that's exact. that's, that's, that's a good thought. Marielle is saying it could explain the lull in action in the siege. Uh, you know, she's suggesting something along the lines of, okay, orcs aren't working. Uh, let's try out men, hold the fort until we get back. Um, so that we would have the, uh, the fall of men in Hildorian happening in the latter part, um, of the season, um, if as we were thinking it through last time, I'm thinking that the culmination of the catch and release program among the elves would probably be around the Dagor Aglareb. Um, if we have the, that whole like betrayal and the letting the orcs in the back door thing going on um, uh, with El Delate, uh, th- I, that seems to me like a fairly climactic uh, uh, moment, right? In that whole plot line of the elves being subverted so that after that, we don't necessarily have to have any particular thing sort of accomplish or show any particular thing being accomplished. After that, we just have like rank paranoia breaking out all over the place. And it's people dealing with the suspicions and trying to over like, how do we move on and actually work together and trust anybody in a world where we know that this is going on? Right. That should be 
the thing that's happening. So we don't need any new events exactly in the catch and release program other than we could have an, uh, an occasional disappearance perhaps. Um, but then in this, so in the second half of the season where the, you know, the elves are kind of trying to deal with the aftermath of all that. Um, Oh, oh, so Marie, people are worried about the uh, NIL's uh, thing that damages to our upbringing. No, 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 no. So here, okay, well, here's my counter argument against those who are concerned. Don't be concerned. NIL's going to be a great character later on. Um, he's going to be remorseful because he didn't do anything wrong. Like his will wasn't subverted. He was deceived. He was manipulated. He was like hypnotized. Um, but he's going to, he's going to get better. He's, you know, he, he is going to be haunted by that. Um, I think it's going to it's going to be one of the things that's going to lead him to have compassion when he sees, you know, Tuor in the wilderness. Um, so, yeah, no, I think it just makes him a deeper character. He's not a bad. He's not corrupted. He's wounded. He's going to be psychologically scarred by that experience. Um, but I think it's going to make him we can easily help that make him into the kind of character, the kind of sort of, uh, you know, rogue um, uh, kind of guerrilla leader in the wilderness uh, on the frontier, sort of hermit, uh, half hermit, half guerrilla leader, right? Uh, resisting Morgoth, but in secret and then taking in Tuor and, and teaching him. Um, he could be like Tuor. I mean, it wouldn't be hard for us to show his, raising of Tuor uh, and protection of Tuor as some kind of him seeing that as some kind of atonement. Right. Um, I, I think that we could make that into a really uh, uh, beautiful um, uh, moment there actually. So, uh, so no, I see that as an advantage. Now that's one of the reasons why I find him so perfect. Anyhow. Okay. Um, so I don't know if that will satisfy the folks who are unhappy with that, but uh, I, I, I don't think it's going to mess it up at all. I think it's going to just make it richer and, more cool because we got to give him some kind of background, right? We can't just have two ors. It would be far worse. I think to have two ors foster father be like some random schmo we've never met before. Right. Who's just like, hi, I'm a random gray elf that you've never heard of that happens to be here for some reason. I mean, yeah, we can make up a backstory, but we are, that's what we're doing. This is it. Right. Why not? Um, and I think it could work together with it super well. Anyway, back to the fall of men. So if the catch and release program, the bad guys plot of that, basically is exposed uh, in the Dagor Aglareb. Um, that would give us a, and, and especially if we, and we were talking about Sauron and Thorin Gwethel being focused on that element of it in the front half of the season, that would shift the fall of men to the second half of the season, which is cool actually, because especially since we suggested that the men, well, in fact, the men are awakening as the sun rises at the end of season three, this will give the men some time to have a paradisical existence. I mean, they should be able to, like, hang out in the Garden of Eden for a little while, right? So we have half a season right. for the men to be unfallen, um, and which, which enables us, when we do have Sauron or Morgoth, whichever gets there first, get there, then um, I, when they get there, they find not, like, a few naked people just waking up and staggering around, right? They find like <clears throat> a paradisical society, um, which still might be technologically crude, but which will be a fully developed society at that point. So, so, so some time has, uh, some time has passed. Um, so that's all, uh, that's all good. You know, that'll, um, um, that'll be, 
that'll be uh, uh, that'll be good timing, I think. Um, so I said there were a couple reasons why we needed to figure this out. Uh, in addition to the move to the movements of the bad guys, right? Who's present and who's not, and when uh, in the season. The other thing is to set up the wanderings of men before. So there's going to be dim memories um, that something bad happened in the past. Like we're going to know that there was a fall um, and we need to have some explanation. And this Trish then brings me back to our discussion of the Easterlings and stuff. Right. Um, because ultimately right. we have to have a division into at least two major camps of the humans. Right. After the fall, like the, 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 the result at the end of the day, after the whole sequence of the fall of men is done, the result needs to be some of the men are going to leave and seek the West, right? Those are the ones who are eventually going to be crossing the mountains and entering season five. Um, so they need to leave for some reason, right? They need to split from the others for some reason, which suggests if all of them as a group fell, um, then there needs to be dissent, right? That the, those, the ones who end up wandering into Beleriand can be those who are seeking, they're seeking the light, right? They've heard rumors that, 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 that there is light in the West. So for some reason, they need to be defecting from those who have been corrupted and are serving Morgoth, right? Um, they don't right. have to yet be like totally you know, they're not like absolutely good guys. They're still confused, right? They still don't know what's going on exactly. Their information is very, very, very little. Um, but they're trying to put that beside them, which is why they're kind of oriented and ready to, uh, many of them anyway, ready to accept uh, a allegiance with, uh, or a, 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 a alliance with the elves. Um, but of course, that also leaves some who stay behind, obviously. Um, and that, Trish, is where I really like your suggestion that ultimately those who stay behind right. are, are those who are the ancestors of the Easterlings, essentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And not just the Easterlings that we see in The Lord of the Rings, but like all like there is presumably a lot of continent off in that direction. Right. Um, there are whole you know, nations really and empires over there. That's really interesting because culturally, they're going to want to justify and rationalize their staying. Okay, right. So they're going to end up with a culture, tradition, oral storytelling, whatever. That's going to be kind of like biased towards Sauron, right. biased toward Morgoth, biased right. that direction. So they'll be fertile ground, you yeah. know, for yes. Sauron. I just think that's really interesting that you, you know, we could pull that through. It's not like, you know, it's not like just in the Third Age that Sauron went and recruited them, right? You right. know, there's Absolutely. been good feeling about him based on their own need to feel good about themselves. Right. Absolutely. Staying. Absolutely. And the other thing that we have to remember, uh, and this is something that we can we can find some way to comment on uh, at some point down the road. But the thing about nations of humans is that once they're like, you can't just convert them and set them in line and then they stay. Right. Because like three generations down the road, they're going to have forgotten, right? So this is one thing that Sauron can kind of find sort of annoying is that he, so like they, they 
Win, oh, I like that idea. They win yeah. the loyalty of the people of Hildorian first, right? And those who stay kind of keep their loyalty, uh, you know, their, their, their affiliation with the bad guys. Fine. But then, you know, Sauron goes back. Say he goes back and visits them, Trish, as you were suggesting, after he gets ousted right. by Luthien and Huon, right? You know, maybe he goes out and he goes and he finds them and he's like, okay, I'm going to go back because uh, fortunately I, I still have a stronghold of power back there, right? So he goes back there and what's happened, Right. They've wandered off and they've barely oh, forgotten. Yeah. They haven't been. They, they haven't had any contact yeah. with their dark gods in generations, and so he's got to like reconvert them again because they've practiced. They're still legends, so they're still a fertile field, as you say. Like he can play on yeah. their memories yeah. and myths and traditions, which is actually days. a great prototype for what he's going to do with the Numenorians later on down the line. Exactly, exactly, and of course he's going to have to do the same. So after the War of Wrath, right? He goes and it's the Second Age now, and so he's going to go set himself up and build Mordor and make magic rings and stuff like that. So he goes back into the East and sure enough, he's got to reconquer and reconvert the whole darn population again, because it's been generations and generations. So, I mean, this is a, like humans don't stay put, right. And they're because they keep dying and, 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 you know, new generations arising, which no, not the, the evil Lords who used to rule them before. So it, it's always a fertile field, but it's not static, right? So the right. East is, is has to be right. reconverted by Sauron again and again. Well, that might also explain what he does with the Nazgul, too. It's like, look, I've been yes. through this myself 16 times. You guys go do it now. Ex- I'm delegating and, the proselytizing to you. And <laughs> the Blue Wizards. Oh, uh huh. In the Third oh. Age, right? Yeah. So this is so Sauron will over time develop systems for because right. st- you're right. That can be part of his goal, right? I need right. a stable leadership structure, like stable in time, right? Right. Uh, because as soon as I set up an empire, I turn my back, and it's only been a measly hundred years. And the next thing you know, like the grandkids of the people, they slipped again. Exactly. Yeah. It's all chaos. Yeah, you're right. And the nine rings, I mean, that's like one of the things. That's one of the purposes of the kings of men with the nine rings, right? Extend their lifespans. Yeah. And they had now have a mission. He turns the mission of, of keeping that alive in the cultures over to those guys. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so Mario, I'm not going to commit myself to the fallen blue wizards idea, but I kind of like it. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Uh, well, I, I don't think it's an interesting one to consider for sure. Yeah. I mean, we can think about now, it. Maybe we could we have can... them be doing it unwitt- unwittingly, right? I mean, we could have them be unwitting in the sense of they end up being tools of Sauron unwittingly. Of course. The, the, but that's re- kind of a. Yeah, that would be fun. The, I mean, and obviously to make them fall in a way which is not identical to Saruman, right? To sort of right, explore right. a different way for wizards to fall. And of course, here's another fun thing. How about decoupling? The two blue wizards. Maybe one falls and the other one does not, right? Um, I, I mean, we're, we're, we, we, we tend to think of the two blue wizards as a matched set. Right, right? as a set. <laughs> Salt and pepper shakers. Exactly, um, exactly. You know, one of the things about that is um, there's, you know, Tolkien himself actually wrote about this. You know, what if Gandalf had gotten the ring and what would that be like? Right. Right, and, and it would be, he said it would be like, the thing of, you know, I'm going to do good. It's like I have the power to do good, and yeah. out of that, actually, evil would come. These two guys could actually be the yes. demonstration of how that would happen. Yes, yes. You know, that, that, they, that they think they're doing it for the good, uh, and it turns bad. Well, especially kind of. thinking about another way to be like the opposite of Gandalf, right? Saruman is one yeah. version of an opposite of Gandalf. 
Um, right. But a different version of the opposite of Gandalf would, what if they decided to, um, at least one of them, again, says, like, right. I'm going to work from within the system, right? I'm going to try to... Right. To bring them around. So I'm going to like bring myself into dominance among all these people and I'm going to be accepted as like, you know, the wizard right. king. Um, uh, but the, but but that process corrupts him once he is once, right. he, you know, right. a- achieves that kind of power. So Saruman tries to set himself up as an independent power. Like he tries to set himself up as the sort of theoretically anti Sauron who then just becomes the mini Sauron instead. Right. Um, right. Gandalf, well, and actually, the way we've made Myron is Sauron does is actually kind of Sauron light because yes. he does the same thing. Oh, I could do it better. You exactly. know, they're doing it wrong. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, so in Saruman, we get the kind of that sort of uh, typological echo thing going on, right? Where he once again echoes just as Sauron himself is an echo of Morgoth. So, uh, uh, so Saruman is kind of an echo of Sauron. And I, I like how all that works. But yeah, to have just as Gandalf detaches himself, he has no home, he has no affiliation, no political affiliation. You know, he um, he helps lots of people, but doesn't accept any positions of power or authority in any land. To have one, at least one of the blue wizards, try to do it the other way, try to do it the way that Gandalf doesn't do it, right? And say, right. Like, no, I am right. going to set myself up as like the king's trusted counselor, and uh, you know, try to govern things from behind the scenes. Um, the other one could yeah. be more of a Radagasty kind of guy, which meaning meaning I don't want to do you know I'm gonna well that didn't work so I'm gonna go off and do this but but become so focused and obsessed with doing good he turns into a means justifies the ends kind of thing yeah you know that he corrupts him. himself by yeah, that would be interesting I would I would like by the way to the the one part of the uh, um I would actually like to side with the Lotro developers and against the essay on the Astari in not having Radagast fail. Um, right. Just have yes. Radagast succeed in a less spectacular way but than Gandalf. Way. You know, yeah. He's, I think that's absolutely, he's a supporting actor yeah. rather than a, and, and what he does happens off stage. So we never know about it in the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. But I, I, so I, so, so having one of the blue wizards be like the anti Gandalf in the way that I was describing. And the other, right. as you were suggesting, being like the anti Radagast would be kind yeah. of fun. Right. Interesting. Uh, now, I mean, now another angle on this is of course, both blue wizards don't have to go bad necessarily. Right. But, exactly. Or one of them could know. start going bad and then repent. That'd be fun. Yeah. Right. That'd be another you know, maybe angle. the anti Radagast one. I don't know, but whatever. Anyway, we probably shouldn't go too far down this particular rabbit hole. Well, but, and I think for something for us all to think about is it is an interesting thing because it's all the different ways Sauron could have gone. Or exactly. all, you know, basically, it's like yeah. we're kind of showing all the different ways Sauron could have gone or Saruman could have gone or, you know what I mean? It's yeah. like yeah. No, the it's... Maya having different, you know, yeah. experience would be really interesting. Clearly. No, anyway. that's a, it's a super fun area of speculation. But anyhow, so the point is we're in figuring out what happened in Hildorian, we're setting all this up, right? This is – the civilization, which is ultimately going, you know, sort of the cradle of the civilization that's going to grow into all of that. So Hildorian is located out there. Um, it's going to be so we should have even I mean, I think it would be pretty cool if like the, the actual place. So they're going to build a temple. Right. The temple, it's maybe the temple itself is going to get destroyed, probably. But it would be really neat to have. Like at the center, like to have this like holy place in the middle of the Easterlings Empire over there, 
um, which has been under the dominion of Sauron and his uh, minions for, you know, millennia. Uh, but to have there be this like sort of, you know, shrine of Hildorian, you know, a memory of the place mm-hmm. where the humans mm-hmm. awoke, um, which would be uh, which would be really fun. And Mario, I agree. It gives us an opportunity to humanize the Easterlings and avoid that general trend in fantasy for strange foreigners to be naturally wicked. Yes, exactly. Unilaterally right. bad. Yeah, yeah. Ex- absolutely. Yes, absolutely. exactly. Right. Um, right, yes. You, you can tell those people are, are evil because they look all Asian or whatever. You know, yes, exactly. That's... They have, they have, they have um, frowns on their faces all the time. Right, and funny <laughs> costumes, yes. And yes. funny costumes, yeah. Um, yeah, and Mario, you're right. We can wreck it if we want to. I mean, the War of Wrath gives us plenty of opportunity. I mean, we we could have Hildorian just simply be lost. I I kind of like keeping it. I kind of. I mean, we can't have it actually preserved. Like, I'm I'm a little bit tempted to have them build a a a temple to Morgoth, which is like still there in the Third Age. Like that would be a little bit cool. But I think that we should have the works of men more ephemeral than that, you know, so that no, nothing built by men that early on is going to survive that long. Right, um, right. But to have them not completely forget, you know, to be able to have some kind of some kind of recollection. Um, and uh, and Mario, I don't think it should be Mordor. I mean, that'd be really interesting. But I uh, like if that were down like in Southern Mordor, for instance, that'd be kind of awesome. But I think Mordor needs to be a frontier land, right? Sauron establishes Morgoth. Sauron established Mordor. My goodness. Yeah. (laughs) This is is continually the problem with doing film film on Fridays is I'm always so sleep deprived. By the time we get to film film, I can barely (laughs) speak straight, but that's okay. Uh, We can overcome. Uh, The point is, Sauron establishes Mordor on the frontier. Like after he's got his, he he's going to be, he will have gone um, after his return from Numenor after his, you know, so he will have been spending time rebuilding once again, the, the, uh, the, the, his dominions in the East. Cause again, they keep forgetting as soon as he turns his back and leaves them for 500 years. Um, he's going to have to go back and reconvert the Easterlings again. And, um, he's going to establish Mordor as the frontier. Like this is the Western frontier of his whole realms. Um, so yeah, that's it. Um, you know, that should be another thing. Of course the Kings of men would understand this, but I mean, one of the other things is he's going to need to tell his minions. It's like, look, if we need to get something, if we need to like have a project with men, it needs to be done in a generation. Yeah. You know, or it needs right. to be done like in a lifetime, right? Well, we don't have a long time with these people. It's going to be something that's, it's an interesting phenomenon, right? I mean, think about this is going to become relevant. This is going to become really relevant in the second age with the invasion of Eriador. Yes. Which yes. happened over a long period of time, right? So he's going to have to raise generations of soldiers to bring to the front. Like Sauron's forces are going to be dying of old age. <laughs> during the siege, you know? So like, so it's, it's, I mean, which is an interesting kind of, uh, uh, shift from the first age battles. Right. But, uh, but definitely something yeah. that he's got to, he's got to, to, to think about. Um, 
You know, it's interesting talking. Obviously, you know, he had such an epic mind. You know, he would do these sweeping things of, you know, would take, you know, a hundred years and he doesn't really think through the details. But the other side of this, though, this this thing is this is actually that whole back to Tolkien's thing of this is mortality and immortality. Yes. That the story is about mortality and immortality. This is still, you know, an expression of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Sauron himself having to kind of come to grips with this. And he's the one who is who is sort of using people in this way. See, the good guys have a different sort of way of looking at it, right? You know, in that, like, they're, like, the kingdom of Gondor, for instance. So, yes, like, the individual men may grow old and die, but the kingdom of Gondor endures, right? The kingdom of Arnor endures, at least, I mean, until it doesn't. But, um, But anyway, so that, you know, the idea of generations arising and continuing the fight, um is a little bit more whereas like when you're when what you're running is a slave nation the logistics of that are just different right and the politics mm-hmm. of that are very different um and so Sauron having to think in kind of different ways um is sort of interesting um uh ooh Marielle says do i think the bad guys grasp the full import of the lack of mortal time before the elves do uh, she says, I wonder if that's part of the tragedy of Agnor oh, and Andreth, that he doesn't truly comprehend the lack of time. I love that, Marielle. That yes. is we really absolutely have to have a scene where Agnor returns like returns to Andreth, having said, like, I shall return soon. And he returns in like 10 years. Right. Right. Which to him is soon. Um, he calls 10 years soon. And Andreth is, visu- is visibly older than right. she was when he left. And he's like, holy cow. <laughs> Because, um, yeah, they're not going to – certainly um, the enemy will have become acquainted with men first and thus acquainted with mortality uh, in all this. Um, yeah, so, okay. Uh, ooh, Hakan. Wow, the origin of hobbits and all this. Uh, nope, not going to talk about that now. Uh, <laughs> but hang on. Let me, let me at least address this to one extent. This is so not relevant to season three or season four, but the question is, when do we want to introduce hobbits and how? Like, where do hobbits come from? We Tolkien never answered that question. We've got to answer it. Um, I have no idea where they come from. When do they come in? I think we have to make hobbits a second age phenomenon. I don't think we can make hobbits a first age. I don't think we have time to make them a first age phenomenon. I don't think we have any justification for bringing them into Beleriand. Right. We uh, also have the Pukelmen too, don't we? The Pukelmen are a first age phenomenon and we've got to figure them out, but we've got a little bit of time there. I think we can bring the Pukelmen in, uh, you know, the Druidine we can bring in uh, later on, like post Baron and Luthien. Um, they right. should be around by the time of Turin Turambar, but... Um, Would it be too corrupting to make the Pukumen ancestors of hobbits? Well, see, there's an interesting connection in that they're like both... The, the Pukumen and the hobbits are the two examples that Tolkien gives of like, to use vastly non-Tolkienian language, like genetically mutated humans. Right, exactly. Right. Like... Evolved, you know, yes. we're talking evolution yes. here. That's Strains of men that have gone in a different direction and are, and, and right. seem to be just different from other men, though ultimately right. originally connected to men and still broadly part of uh, men. So there was a suggestion. Uh, uh, Marie and Marielle are both reminding us on the discussion board that uh, 
that hobbits should be connected to ant wives in some way. That's a fun idea. I really like oh, that. Yeah, yeah, At the yeah. very least, the early hobbits should be befriended by the ant wives, even yeah. if the ant wives aren't involved. Hard to see how the well, ant wives I mean, could be involved directly, but I don't understand at all. Anyway, well, never mind. I'm not going to get myself too distracted and think well, about the origin of the of hobbits we could, today. Well, one thing we could do, don't laugh at me. Okay. This is actually okay. funny. Is, you know, when we're showing, like, the the uh, men, you know, yeah. the villages or whatever, I mean, there could be, like, little people. I mean, there could be some, you know, just in the background, we don't point to right. them or something, but there's, like, shorter statured if men. you just want to have them That's waking the up population. in Hildorian? No, I mean, they would be part of the men population, right? right? Exactly. So you go in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. So, so hobbits would be know, there from the beginning. The village, and there'd be like, they'd be early versions. They wouldn't be hobbits yet. You know, they'd be, right. but they would be shorter oh, statured man. men. You know, Shoot, I don't know. Right. This is a season four question because we have to, because before we have to decide first and foremost, are hobbits part of the original plan of right. Eru? in the making of the second children of Iluvatar, or are they a later refinement? In God, I would think they would have to have been part of the music given the role they play well, in the third really, age. I mean, there's not so many options, right? I mean, in order for something like that to happen, because I mean, the, the hobbits are pretty different from humans and we have no evidence that the rest of humans like mutate in that way. Right, we just don't right. have enough examples. We have two: the Druidine, the, the Pukelmen, and the Hobbits. Um, so we have two examples, but that's not enough to suggest that it's just a thing that's happening all over the place to to, right. to, to human beings. Um, so, uh, so are we thinking? So, are you, oh, you're thinking in the sense of that sort of these shorter statured men are part of the original awakening. Well, that's it. But that that's my question. So, so Got basically, it. there are two options, right? Option number one is that the plan, Iluvatar's plan from the beginning involves like regular humans and hobbits or proto-hobbits and like Druidine have Proto, some other role, Druidine. right? The, <laughs> and maybe others, we could, you know, we could, there could be others elsewhere. There's a continent, true. right? So there could be others like others like the Druidine that are ne never interact with the folks of Beleriand or, or even of uh, Eriador uh, or Ravanian. So, Anyway, okay, so that's one so that's one possibility. One possibility is that this kind of racial diversity among humans and I'm speaking of course of racial diversity much more than the kind of ethnic diversity that we often talk about among humans now, like fundamental racial diversity among humans um could be part of Iluvatar's original plan or it could be the result of influence by the Valar later on. I don't see any other way in which it could happen, frankly. Um, I, I don't think it could have. I don't think even elves could yeah. do it. Think about that. We have a we have a we have a uh, uh, I'm about to say prerequisite, but that is so the wrong word precedent. That's the word I want. We have a precedent for this in Numenor, right? The Numenorians are specially blessed by the Valar. As a result, they change. They get taller, right? You know, they're taller. They're stronger. They live longer. Um, the duration of the lives, the physical stature, the wisdom and intelligence, all of these things happen as a result of the blessing of the Valar upon the Numenorians, right? So 
that Valar can intervene and not create a new species. We're not pulling a full Aule here, right, in the making of the dwarves, but some kind of influence. That would give us the justification to have both the, Dru- the Druidine and the Hobbits be the result of some particular intervention by one or more of the Valar in the human hmm. race later on down the road. Right? Um, yeah. And Marielle says, do we want to even open the can of worms that is Bjorn? What an excellent question. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Yeah. Now, Bjorn, I don't have an answer for Bjorn. He's described as a man who's, we have to to answer the question about is he a man or a bear, right? But But if you start to think about that, you could almost match some of these changes up to specific Vala. Exactly. Yeah. No, we could do that. The question. So that's really the question. The question is, what do we want to do? And and I hope everybody sees why I'm talking about this now. This is not a this is not a digression because it's actually pretty key. We should tease this if it's going to happen. If it's part of Eru's plan, we we could show that. I know we're going to have the fall of men happen largely off screen. I think we need at least one scene in Hildorian to show that the men are there. Um, I. I don't think we need to show the whole thing. And I think probably the fall itself we don't show. But I think we need at least a glimpse of... Uh, do you know, of, do you of know how... You know how Yovana goes back to Eru after Aule? Yeah. And she's like, mm-hmm. well, I want some of my own kind of thing. I mean, what stops them from having another conversation at this point about the men? Um, it could be along the lines of something along the lines of, I don't know... Uh, you know, having the elves only be one kind is not really working out very well for the good of Middle Earth. <laughs> you know, like having one strain of elves, you know, maybe, you know, could we do, you know, dear Eru, like Yvonne, I could see going because that's what I'm thinking about the Bjornings, you know, could could I, you know, could you, like you did for the plants and animals, could I have a strain of men that I could protect and oversee you know something like that to where they're making an argument of let's have more than one strain here right or i don't know that's just i'm also just thinking rather than even making it kind of tactical in that way it could simply be men are sort of more changeable than elves anyway Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. um so it could just be a natural out a natural result of one of the valar establishing a relationship with a group of men. Right? Well, that's true. Um, that they, over time, begin to have um, uh, their, um, you know, they're just... They're, they're Much just in the over- sense of the way Orme had kind of a, a soft spot for the elves, right? Yeah. Different Valar yeah. could do, yeah. have something now, similar. Now, Hakon's suggestion is a, is a fun suggestion. What if the hobbits are blessed by Tom Bombadil. I was just going to say, we need to bring Tom Bombadil in here somewhere. And I'm not quite sure how to do that. Is this where, is this where Tom Bombadil shows up? Is this where he, you know, that's an interesting idea. That is an interesting idea. And it makes him almost a Vala as opposed to a Maya, doesn't it? Well, and you know, we don't know exactly his, exactly his relative stature, you know. Or um, Eru. Hasn't there been people say that they thought he was Eru? There's that. Yeah, well, there's yeah, that, there's uh, that. I mean, he's clearly not, but... Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. What? Well, you think Eru wouldn't wear yellow boots? Oh, my, come on. I'm not saying that. I'm not, it's not about the boots. 
He's not above yellow boots, and I think if he if he wore yellow boots, he would really enjoy it. But I'm not. That's not the reason. Um, yeah, I. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I, I. The problem. The problem that I have is with the geographical fixation or fixity of Bombadil. Right? He's not going to yeah, travel about. Yeah. Right. And the hobbits are going to end up near him, but they're not going to start out near him. So, well, but doesn't he did actually travel some? Because doesn't when he when he reminisces with the hobbits, doesn't he talk about like Fangorn and all that stuff? I mean, he 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 knows about stuff, but oh, I don't know okay. how well, I how he often he travels traveled. around. Okay, um, right. but uh, yeah, um, no, I I so I kind of. I mean, I'm a good example of that. I was a nomad in my younger days, and look at me now. I'm like fat, exactly. right? So I mean, he may have traveled earlier and then decided right. to settle down, right? right. Uh, yeah, no, we can do that. We can have him, though. You know, it's it's a little bit str- having the idea of uh, showing Tom Bombadil being a a Rolling Stone uh, is a little bit <laughs> weird, right? You know, just having. I, Having Tom Bombadil randomly coming in and out of, of various places, I think, is going to be jarring even for people who are like familiar Stan with Tom Lee Bombadil. It in the, in, the in the Marvel Universe movies, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Well, we had already talked about it, you know, cameos for him all over the place. But Yeah. Well, um, I mean, we could do the adventures of young Tom as well. I mean, he doesn't right. necessarily have to have always been this, in this particular shape that we know him in. That's in, true. That's true. Well, we'll think. We don't have to decide that right no, now. The question we have to decide is... We have to have it. Marie, we need a we need a session called the question of Tom at some yeah, point. Yeah, we need we we need, we need to figure out about Tom Bombadil, like especially if we're going to bring Bombadil. him in here. But anyway, yeah. but the point is, we need to figure out: is this part of Iluvatar's plan, or is this a result of their interactions? I like the idea of it being a result of their interactions in many ways. I think that seems logical that that would happen. That you know that they would change in those ways that there would be... So thinking about the Druidine, for instance, the Pukulmen, um, uh-huh. who have certain like abilities which it's hard not to call magical, right? They would have received some blessings and also, you know, the, but there would be some cost to that as well. Like, they, they have they have been blessed in particular. It's hard to explain how they are, uh, you know, in any other way than as, you know, having sort of received the the blessing of... of Unless, like, Iluvatar has chosen to bless them in particular ways that he didn't others for some reason that we'd have to explain, right? But, um, anyway, uh, so... Actually, you're right. I mean, I think from that standpoint, the Valar being part of the... It makes more sense. But here's here's the downside. Here's the argument against that. My argument against it is, like, once you open that can, where do you stop? Like, why don't all of the Valar each go and adopted like a group of people? And and if they did, where are they? I mean, I guess we could have like, you know, I don't know, like Vana's dancing people off in the east somewhere, you know, and and uh, uh, and it's and we can kind of tease it. As I said, I don't have any reason to believe that there necessarily aren't special people who are elsewhere down the road. And come to think of it, it would give us a really cool opportunity to have like some pretty awesome boss bad guys down the road if there's like other sub races yeah, of humans who true. are corrupted out in the east and then end up being like the 
bizarre, elite, semi-magical warriors of, you know, the Empire of Sauron and that kind of thing. Um, uh, uh, or or that end up being becoming Nazgul it's, or, you know, a, a strains that become Nazgul. I mean, he's he's kind of uh, – I don't mean – you know, like one of that yeah. strain becomes a Nazgul. Becomes a Nazgul, you know, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, there's, there's a whole bunch of Nazgul that we have. Uh, like the Witch King, for example. Yeah. I mean, he could come from a strain of men – we like you're see, talking about, that we're given some kind of powers. Are, we are going to get the opportunity to invent backstories for each of the nine Nazgul, which is going to be awesome. And I cannot even begin to describe how much better of a job we are going to do of that than certain <laughs> video games I won't mention. Um, absolutely. Uh, so, okay. So I think... Aragor, the gateway to Angmar. Sorry. Yeah. I just... <laughs> anyway, the point is... <laughs> I think so. I feel like we're everyone seems to be getting into the idea of the the Valar influence explanation. The other thing I would say about this is it it certainly gets us into less theological territory, right? If Eru designed them, right? If he created men from the beginning with these sort of sub races, there has to be like a reason for that, and at some point we're going to have to wonder why that was right um right so that's fine okay so i say all right tony wants the hobbits to be vana's people okay well all right we don't have to uh, settle any of that right now but i'm game with that let's 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 do it let's go with it it also does make sense as marie points out as to why the different sub races of men should still all be under the category of the second children uh, Marie's suggesting that it would kind of look if he created the men, right? And then he's like, you know, the, okay. Then the, then he creates the Druidine, and then he cre- it's like, are those like the third children and the fourth children? And the yeah, you know, that makes it they, really difficult to yeah. To make or he sure. goes, or it's like, oops, no, here, yeah, oh, exactly. oh, oops, no, right. let me try another one. Oops, right? Humans, <laughs> humans, three humans four Like he's he just keeps screwing it up. Yeah, no, exactly. And and again, we'd have to give some explanation for all that, and I don't think we want to go there. Better, I think, and it does show a more like originally they're all the same. Right. And they're going to change over time. They're going to change under the influence of different people, but they're still all going to be in the same category. And it makes it easier for us to capture that, you know, to say that even though there's going to become significant variations, you know, from like the eight foot tall Numenorean down to the three foot tall Hobbit, you know, still they're all men. Right. They're all they're all part of the second children of Iluvatar. Um, I think if we have them all start off being you know, all waking up there, uh, in Hildorian, um, then that's going to be, uh, good. That's going to be fine. Yeah. Um, Shoot. Okay. Just thought of another issue with depicting, see what a wonderful illustration this is of the kind of challenge that you get when you're telling a story in a visual medium, as opposed to telling in a story. If we were just telling this in a story, we can say, so then the men developed a paradisical society and we could describe the paradisical society and how the men all live there in harmony. And you know, we don't have to show actual actors and human beings with like hair and skin color on screen. Right. Um, but, we do have to show that. Um, mm-hmm. So 
do we have Hildorian be ethnically diverse? Oh, that's a good question. Presumably. I would think we would. Yeah. I think we'd have to, probably. Yeah. Right? I don't know. See, if I, again, if I were writing this in prose, I would so dodge that question. Not only just for political correctness purposes, but just because it'd be kind of cooler just to keep that mysterious, right? Yeah. Um, you know, so that you can just create, like, and it, it makes it a more mythic story, right? To sort of have this, un, you know, not to describe physically what, like, the proto-humans looked like, so that, you know, you can kind of wonder and imagine, like, what did the proto-human look like? Um, but, uh, yeah, we're going to have to think about that. Um, yeah. Well... I'm going to turf that one to the discussion boards and see what we think about that, because it does it is going to have a direct impact on season five. Right. With the Adine who are going to come across into Beleriand and the Easterlings who are going to come and fight, uh, uh, you know, on Morgoth's side later on. You know, we have to think about visual ethnicity uh, with those as well. So it's a it's good. It's a question that's going to be relevant pretty soon. Not this season, but pretty soon. Uh, so. Let's I'm going to turf that uh, to the discussion boards and let them discuss it. And then we'll come back with that later on, because it's like I said, it's a challenge. It's a challenge that you normally wouldn't have to face. And it's one of the you know, I I think it's a really cool illustration, as I was saying, of why how it's easier to tell a mythic story in prose than it is in a visual medium. It's really hard to capture myth in uh, in a visual medium because you have to make everything so concrete, right? I mean, thinking back to the way that Tolkien talked about this, he wasn't talking about myth in exactly these terms, but when he was talking about this stuff and on fairy stories, right? Like in a story, you can just say the word bread and say that there's bread, right? But if you're doing this on stage or in a film, you have to have an actual loaf of bread to decide. Is it white? Bread or brown bread? What shape is the loaf, right? You have to have an actual physical loaf, which means no other loaf of bread could be it. Whereas in a story, you can just say the word bread, which is in its way, you know, has a lot of kind of mythic implications to it, right? So um, you can kind of, it's easier to make that broad mythic appeal to the human imagination in prose uh, for this reason. Um, Anyway. A little sidebar. Okay. Um, so we'll think more about that for later on. Um, so, okay. So I'm cool with, so we're going to have the humans, whether they're going to be ethnically different, like whether they're going to have different skin tones or not. We're going to have the humans of Hildorian not yet. Be, we're not going to have hobbits in Hildorian. We're not going to have uh, Druidine in Hildorian. They're all going to be of the same sub-race in Hildorian. And the kind of diversities that we're going to see among the human population will be the result of later interventions, um, which don't have to happen for at least hundreds of years, which is to say at least a couple of seasons here. Um, so we don't have to worry about that just now. So, okay. Um, uh, great. So 
we're making slow progress on the Hildorian question. So what happens in Hildorian? Um, we get a lot. We Tolkien wrote a lot about this, actually. Um, in fact, we get a whole narrative. In fact, we get a couple whole narratives about this um, in uh, uh, the in Morgoth's Ring uh, later on. Um, and we also get some early stuff in uh, the Lost Tales about the initial discover awakening and discovery of uh, of of men and their initial temptation and, and that kind of thing. Um, uh, so near the beginning and near the end of Tolkien's career, he he wrote some good stuff about the fall of men. Um, I would like to lean on some of the stuff that he did at the end when he wrote about the stuff in Morgoth's ring. It's much, it's, it's, it's very garden of Eden. Like, uh, it's clearly patterned on the garden of Eden and ultimately they are brought to worship Morgoth. Uh, they are corrupted and brought to worship Morgoth. I agree with, um, sticking to that. So discussion board has some concrete suggestions about this. Um, we do know that Sauron is a good tempter and giver of gifts. So let me address this question first. So my first question, is it Morgoth alone or is Sauron involved in the corruption of men? I... I'm not sure I like the idea of Sauron being involved. And here's the reason I don't like it. What I don't like about it is I do not, I think it's too early to suggest that Sauron is better at this stuff than Morgoth is. Yes, Sauron is a great tempter. Yes, he's a good giver of gifts and stuff and, and kind of teasing, you know, the para, the, you know, the Anatar parallels and stuff is kind of fun, but we have lots of opportunities to do stuff like that. And, I don't want to yet more like there's nothing yet Sauron can do that Morgoth can't do. Um, and I think that Morgoth can be a tempter still. Um, and I think that he is certainly still capable and wily enough, um, to, uh, um, to, to do this. Tony says he still likes the idea of Sauron being the serpent in the garden Tony, to me, the primary virtue of that choice of, of having this be involved with Sauron from the beginning is thinking about Sauron's role later on. Remember how he's going to declare himself the king of men? Um, if he sort of feels like, man, I've been in charge of this human being project from day one, right? Uh, if that gives him a, you know, sort of the justification for feeling like, you know, he has kind of ownership over this whole thing. I could, I would certainly say that, um, I would certainly say that he, Sauron would want to do this, especially fitting this into the shape of what we've had Sauron doing so far, because he had his elf corruption slash seduction slash, you know, necromantic project going on earlier on, which Morgoth wrecked, right? So second children of Iluvatar being like Sauron's corrupting experiment 2.0, right? Makes a lot of sense. I, 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 would, I would easily see Sauron loving that idea 
and being involved in that plan or wanting to be involved in that plan. Um, and Maria, I know that Morgoth can't change into a fair shape, but I'm not sure he needs to change into a fair shape. Um, all he has, but he, he can still adopt a fair voice and speak to them out of the darkness. And that would be sufficiently a impressive and be scary, um, but not just scary, also enticing. Right. You know, he would just be the voice who would then manifest himself in his terrifying but brilliant form. I love the emphasis on the Silmarils in the darkness. Right. The humans don't have any light technology. Um, uh, I mean, I think they probably have fire, but I don't think they have anything other than fire. Um, and then here comes Morgoth with this with the, the radiant Silmarils, the idea of him, uh, the, the idea of Morgoth utilizing the Silmarils in order to give himself a kind of beautiful appearance, right? Maybe all they see is the beautiful light of the Silmarils before they see his terrible form, right? Um, And so there can be kind of three stages, right? Where first he's the voice, then he's the light. Uh, And remember, light is what he's about, right? A light is what he claims ownership over. Um, uh, So he he would claim to be the true light, Right. And then he would use the Silmarils to show that light. And then he would, um, which we have to remember, the light of the Silmarils still has to be in some qualitative way different from sunlight. Right. And from other light. Um, Exactly. Marie, we have him be the counter to the voice of Iluvatar. Exactly. And then he reveals himself. So I still I, 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 I certainly reject the idea that Morgoth isn't capable of doing this on his own, that he needs Sauron or else it's not going to work out. I do think Sauron would want to do it. I think that Sauron's going to sneak over there and stick his oar in whether Morgoth invites him to or not. Um, at the very least, he's going to spy on it and f- see what Morgoth is up to and, and think about how he can, you know, it, we, you know, have the seeds of him thinking how he can feather his own nest with this. So, um, uh, I, And I think also, here's the other thing, my other hesitation, my other hesitation for having Sauron involved, he's not the serpent. He's not the devil figure, right? He's the poser devil figure. He's the wannabe devil figure. He's the fake, ultimately. He's he's putting himself up like he's the big evil one, but he's not the big evil one. He's the mini evil one. Um, and I don't want there. So on the one hand, having him be the original tempter of men would give him a kind of legitimacy when he claims to be the king of men. But that's my problem. Give me too much legitimacy. I think, um, I would, when he comes back generations later and sets himself up, what he would do is say, like, I am, you know, remember that God whom y'all bowed down and worshipped generations ago? I'm back, right? I am he, but he's lying, right? He'd have to pose as Morgoth to do that. And I would want that kind of fraud to be at the heart of his relationship with human beings. He's always got to deceive them. Um, He's not the big bad, and he knows it, but he is fooling others and eventually himself into believing that he's the big bad. Um, 
but he's not. So, um, and yeah, he likes to cast himself as high priest to Morgoth worship. Murray, you're right. We do get that uh, with Numenor. And I think he, we can see him adopting that role. Maybe that's the way that he comes in. I would think that would probably be the way that he comes in uh, to the humans down the road, right? When he's reconverting them. Um, he can certainly at least once play that uh, uh, play that role. Uh, but I'm as I, this is why I'm just, just Trish. What do you think about this? You, you see my reluctance here to um, to uh, involve Sauron directly. Yeah, yeah, I do, I do. I, I you know the other thing. I now I was away for just a couple of seconds because mm-hmm. I had a, a call, but um, uh, I want to really be careful about us getting to Earth related mm-hmm. you know in other words mm-hmm. like the biblical because yeah i just Tolkien establishes I, it as a parallel but it's not a direct retelling it's it, not yeah it's not a direct retelling yeah he even he said that right yeah. that these were these are not the antecedents of humans on earth kind of thing well yeah, um yeah. if anything it's like it, you know we can maybe think of it as like uh uh um was it uh uh, Lewis's alternate, you know, other worlds, <laughs> right. you know, right. another, a different world. Uh, but I, yeah, I just, cause it's just, I mean, I think it'd be really tempting for folks to really take, you know, take the Bible and run with it kind of thing. And I, 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 I think I, I, I like your idea of, of trying, trying to like veer away from that if we can. Well, which we, we, I mean, Tolkien does more of that in Morgoth's ring than almost anywhere. Like when he tells the false story in Morgoth's ring, it's more Bible-y than any other story. But don't you think, writing, haven't but... you told me that that's like, as years went by and he kind of got like pushed on by priests and in his own, you know, fellow Catholics. I mean, that he became a little bit more Catholic with a small C maybe in his well, telling. In of some the... ways, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard. I can see some inconsistencies in Tolkien's thought in his later years where sometimes like yeah. he certainly doesn't push the historical, right? I mean, there's this kind of vague idea that Middle Earth is like prehistorical humans, right? That, that, that it's our actual world. And it's just what happened long ago uh, in a land far away. And we don't really know about it anymore. And now is the dominion of men. And we've forgotten all of those things. I mean, that's of course, like that idea of like why there are still memories of elves in the land and stuff is part Mm -hmm. of the original impetus of the story back in the lost tales. So, but yeah. as more and more pressure gets put on that, he kind of, he does seem to me to kind of back away from that back a off. little bit. Yeah. But yeah. at the same time, there are other times when he doesn't, right? And one yeah. of, and and in Morgoth's Ring, actually, in the volume of Morgoth's Ring, I think we can see that in a couple different ways. One in this, when he's telling the story of the fall of man, he kind of realizes, like, well, okay, if this is supposed to be the historic, like prehistory of men then like the fall of man is the fall of man right so i mean right, like, right. so he does kind of go back to the bible much more but yeah. secondly um uh but secondly there's the astronomical stuff right where he's like well if this is the prehistory of our planet <laughs> we can't really do the flat earth thing so we've got to have so we've got to make it the solar system from the get-go and and all that and you know so so i, I think we can see you know 
I don't think that he totally made up his mind about this, right? On the one hand, no, he's like, either. for story purposes, it's easier either. to just kind of separate it from our world. But he did also have that impulse to say, like, well, if it's not separated, then what has to happen and how do we have to change stuff? And, you know, it's... I mean, I would think we could show, you know, there's there's different ways that a that a, you know, a, a supernatural being can bring about the fall of mortals. You know, it doesn't necessarily just have to be the one. Um, I'm thinking we show, you know, that there's another, you know, that this happened this way, you know, the fall still happened, but it came about this other way kind of, I don't know. know? Well, and ultimately Um, the outline of the fall, I think is pretty clear, right? From the, given what we have, and I I don't mean pretty clear thinking about the Bible parallel at all. I mean, from the world that we've created, and by the way, we've already made a decision. Right. We decided to go with the flat earth, um, which means we've already rejected Tolkien's later impulse to like go back to round world to, to, you know, to round earth astronomy from the very beginning. Right. Um, So. um, And also, doesn't Sauron kind of hook them not so much on sort of the tree of knowledge sort of thing or, you know, the knowledge of good and evil, all that, but the mortality thing. The fact that, you know, the fear of death, the yeah, look what he did to you thing. And the fear of the darkness. Yeah, exactly. Right. right. Uh, which is connected with the fear of death. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, uh, that's one of the tricky bits, theologically speaking, and one of the places where he had more interesting discussions with priests uh, mm, afterwards. True. The whole, that was the biggest. I mean, if there is one place. Um, uh, if there's one place where Tolkien's, you know, uh, Tolkien sort of world, ran afoul, of... <laughs> well, is is least theologically compatible, yeah. uh, and people can mention Marie was just talking about the Valar. Valar are not a problem. Um, the Valar are not a problem because the existence of the Valar and their their custodial relationship with the world is actually not very different from medieval Catholic. Um, uh, well, angels yeah. thing and, or and, is it and an see, angelic or yes angelic this is the, the so when Tolkien said they're not really angels he's referring to to Catholic angelology oh, right? to, angel, yeah, to, yeah, angels right. so there's there's the heavenly hosts right and there's this whole hierarchy among them angels are the lowest level there are nine according to medieval Catholic theology there are nine different grades um uh, hierarchical grades of, an- of of angelic beings. The angels are literally number nine. They're the lowest, and the archangels are the second lowest. Okay, um, so the, the, the angels are like the bottom of the of the angelic food chain, and they have like a specific job. And so when Tolkien was saying the Valar aren't angels, what he's saying is that's not their job. They don't have that job. Right, because the job of the angels, that lowest uh, rank of the uh, of the angelic hierarchy, they're messengers, and mm-hmm. that's not what mm-hmm. the Valar do. They're not messengers. Mm-hmm. What the Valar are like are the planetary intelligences, which are way higher up on the food chain, mm-hmm. um, and they act very much like planetary intelligences, who are very much like the Greco-Roman gods. In fact, that's exactly what the medieval explanation was. Um, They were not just Christianizing the Ang. I mean, they were, but it's not just about Christianizing that what they were saying was like, well, the the gods that the that the Greco-Roman peoples worship, they were super wise, those ancient Greco-Roman folks. 
they perceived something real about how the world works. Like, there is a spirit called Venus, which influences the world in certain ways, and a spirit, Mars, which influences the world in certain ways. They just didn't understand how they, like the Greco-Romans, didn't understand how they fit into the big picture. Right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, and how they fit into the big picture are delegated authorities under God, right? Um, and this, of course, is most, this whole uh, I, Christian uh, worldview is articulated most clearly in C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy with, uh, uh-huh. uh, uh, with the, uh, the Eldil. Um, uh, anyway, so that's that. So the mere existence of Valar does not inf- is, is no conflict with Catholic theology. And this is why there are some times when I get not grumpy, but like Tolkien's statement, like when he sometimes says they're like angels and then says they're not like angels. And it's not a contradiction. <laughs> it's a technical distinction. <laughs> but like when he says those things, he's relying on so much like Catholic and medieval history that modern people don't have that like, that even people... Catholics don't necessarily have. Yes, like exactly. modern day Catholics. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah, Brie, exactly. C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy is where we get this stuff most clearly. And I think that it is not at all difficult to see a similarity between the Valar in Tolkien and, uh, you know, Oyarsa, uh, uh, you know, Malacandra and Paralandra and everybody in Lewis's space trilogy. Um, anyway, yeah, that is, is actually yeah. uh, a thing that a lot of people, especially yeah. the more casual Tolkien fans, don't understand is he was a medievalist. Right, right. It really only makes sense if you put it in the context of medieval Catholicism, culture, whatever. You've got to remember that he was a medievalist. Yes. You know, he's not just like a, fiction writer <laughs> yes yes and yeah exactly and yes uh marielle this does come up and uh, lewis explains the business about the planetary intelligences and stuff in the discarded image absolutely mm-hmm. um anyway the bringing it back in here the point is um we've already made a choice um to say that the history of Middle Earth is not exactly the same as our planet, Mm-mm. right? Because we've done the flat Earth thing, and we're going to do the the enrounding of the Earth thing at the end of Numenor, like, and that. So, which Tolkien saw brightly doesn't fit in with you know the modern view of our world, right? And so it's harder to make that fit, even mythically anymore. Um, uh, anyway, point is, we've already kind of drawn a line in the sand there. Yeah. So, uh, okay. Coming back to so the I think, specific you know, in terms of the fall of men, right? Yes. That's what in, ter- we're in terms about, of the fall yeah. of men, the key issue, this has to be dependent. Our version of the fall of men, I think, has to flow naturally from the character of the bad guys as we have developed them, right? Why do the bad guys want to corrupt men and in what ways do they want to corrupt them? Um, and I think we have two factors here. First, we have Morgoth's grand plan, right? Melkor's grand plan, I should say. The grand plan that yeah. he had when he was Melkor to say, I will establish order and dominion over the entire world. It just needs to obey me and then we can get going, right? Uh, his right. insistence that he has the plan and he has to be in control. And if everybody agrees with him, and that he has the power and the strength and is the only one who has the strength and therefore the right uh, to be able to rule over all things and to order all things as he wills. Um, So on the one hand, 
he would very naturally see that this other species of people should obviously worship him, right? Because he would he would consider them lesser than the elves, I think, right? They're <laughs> lesser in the sense of being mortal. They're lesser in the sense of being weaker, and you know. So there's there's uh, he would see that the what the advantages that they have, uh, and here's a topic I am not ready to discuss today, the question of the freedom of the will of men. Um, I'm Here's me bouncing oh. right over that. <laughs> but whatever, the point is he's not going to value we get, it. We should get Verlin on, on the podcast to discuss it with you. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I can just kick, kick back. And, uh, you know, let the two of you go for Ooh, it. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm going to wimp right out on that one. Uh, but um, anyway, no, yeah. Uh, you know, Verlin would eviscerate me on this topic. Um, anyway, uh, I, but my point is that Morgoth is not going to really think about or value that. I think that Morgoth is going to kind of overlook that. I think he's going to see them as weaker tools. I think he's, but they're going to be tools, right? He's going to, um, he's going to, uh, um, He's going to just want just choose to dominate them. His goal, so his goal with them will be to have them worship him as God. First of all, because he he's kind of into that, right? He wants everyone to to sort of submit to him. He's not expecting like Manway to worship him, just obey him, right? Just submit to him, just be his underling. Um, but the lesser creatures, which he would use the words like lesser, certainly Morgoth would, um, he would expect to worship him. Um, and he would be putting himself in place of Iluvatar, right? He does not want them to have any knowledge of or allegiance to Iluvatar. He would want to be in that role. He would want them to worship him as God because he's the rightful ruler of Middle-earth. Everybody knows, right? So at the, so as of the two threads here are first his, his initial plan, right? But also the corruption. He's sliding downhill, right? And he himself is becoming corrupted in his, his initial, like... I think I have the best plan, and I humbly believe that I am the most qualified person to carry this out, so everybody should come along with me. And the way that we were playing that out in season one, right, that has been sliding already, right, and has now just been like, nobody's obeying me, I'm ticked off. Well, some people are obeying me, but not enough people are obeying me, and I'm ticked off, and I'm just going to stomp on people who are opposing me. And he's becoming more and more delusional about his role and more and more insistent upon worship and uh, ab- more and more abject submission. Right. Um, originally just needed allegiance, right? He because just, I said so. Right, exactly. <laughs> more and more he will be. So so that he, he wants to set himself up as tyrant of the humans, and he's perfectly happy to be a benevolent tyrant. In strengthening them in various ways to become his most effectual possible tools, right? So it's he's not just like he's going to stomp them. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, they're instruments, right? He's gonna he's gonna right. forge them into his instruments. Um, ooh, which means Uh-oh. if we talk Good about idea. the Valar changing humans, would there be some humans that were changed by Morgoth's direct intervention by or Sauron's? Interesting question. Yeah. Well, again, back to the Witch King. Back, back to, to where did the Witch King, King yeah, get his, ca- the, his powers? Yes, you know, back to the. Um. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. All right. So, um. Uh. There's. Um. Yes. Um. 
Anyway, we don't have to worry about that just now, but just sorry, I just couldn't no. help but think of that in light of our earlier conversation. So, so the the dynamic of the fall of man, he is going to try to win their allegiance, not just to dominate them, but it's going to be just as he himself can't take a fair form. Um, there's always going to be an element of fear and he's going to be kind uh-huh. of okay with that. He doesn't want their love, right? He wants their obedience. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. Maybe back in the day, maybe if this were season one, he would try to get them to love him, right? He would well, try to adore him. I don't know about loving adore him. Would... Yeah. Well, exactly. Exactly. He would yeah. try to, he would try to, uh, um, uh, to, to get them to adore him. He would have thought of a, a more kind of imagined a genuinely positive. Cause I mean, he mm-hmm. still sees himself as like the natural leader of a, you know, a worldwide utopia, which he's attempting to set up right back in his autumno days. That's how mm-hmm. he m- might've thought about things, but now not so much. Right. Um, now he wants to dominate. He wants their submission. He wants their obeisance right. before him. Um, right. Their absolute obedience. He's going to build them up. He's going to make promises, which he's prepared to keep to them um, if they obey him. Um, but, uh, okay. So I think as tempting as it is to have Sauron involved, I really think this should be Morgoth's project. I do think that Sauron should snoop on his project. I think that Sauron should be checking in and taking notes. Uh-huh. I think that Sauron should be thinking about how he can, and I do think that. Well, he doesn't Sauron... want another orc mess up, right? Also. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be a reason. Yeah. I think that Sauron should be, yeah, should be taking notes, should be uh, uh, looking for opportunities for himself, even thinking about, again, as time goes on, we could imagine Sauron uh, creating a landing spot for himself. If, you know, when it looks like things might go downhill in one way or another, either Morgoth become totally mad or he might fear more. Here, here's another division between Morgoth and Sauron that we can develop over the next few years. Right. Um, as Morgoth goes further and further down the road, he will fear the Valar less and less, thinking, deluding himself into thinking that he has absolute mm-hmm. dominion and they will never dare to come against him again. Sauron could be increasingly looking over his shoulder across the sea and being like, you know, <laughs> at some point or other, right, <laughs> you know, it's going to hit the fan. Like, this is the, they're going to come. Sooner or later, this is, you know, I, and, you know, he could eventually be like, I can't believe it's taking this long, but... um. But he he's going to be thinking that they're mm-hmm. they're going to come, and so this is why he vanishes, right? Um, yeah. And so so Tony, I think that this is not about him usurping the project at the time, because again, Morgoth is going to be too with it. We can't show Morgoth being weak yet. He's not weak yet. He just has right now still the potential for weakness, or you know, we're seeing where the where the openings are going to come. Um, Instead, he's going to be, um, Sauron is going to, like, again, in future generations, this is where I think he goes. I think he goes here, um, at least to visit after he flees, uh, from Beleriand. Uh Um, but, um, yeah. He could even do the, you know, I mean, he could even do the, I come to you as an emissary of Morgoth. I mean, they don't know that Morgoth's been banished right right? i mean i could totally see him like you know doing that kind of thing so so in that respect 
that does underline even more so that it's Morgoth that that makes the first impact. Yes. Not um, Sauron. Yes. Uh, yes. Yes. Um, oh, sorry. I'm just thinking there was a question that was asked like ages ago at the beginning, the very beginning of the broadcast when we were talking about this, which is an excellent question, which we should think about, which is when... How long does my does Myron always think of himself as Myron? Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Does yeah. he begin to identify himself as Sauron at some point? Sauron is a he does at some point, doesn't he? Does he the do it? Those are going to start calling him Sauron, right? Um, and maybe it's in season four that that happens when the catch and release plot is revealed, and he is seen to be the uh, the one in charge of that. So. Uh-huh. Basically, and hey, folding this back into the question of uh, the Hildorian plot and its relation to season four, I think Morgoth should be away for the front half of the season. I think the first half of the season leading up to the Dagor Aglareb, he goes away. And when he's away, he basically leaves Gothmog and Sauron to their own devices, right? Mm -hmm. Y'all do you, right? You have... Forces under your control. Uh, uh, we've still got, uh, you know, I, we, Gothmog still has the Balrogs and all the orcs. And um, Sauron uh, has his little, you know, uh, group and um, <laughs> uh, and stuff. So Morgoth basically says, I've got I, I've got to go do a thing. Right. You guys uh, see what you can do. Right. And this is like a way for him to. You know, Morgoth would be thinking, like, let's see which lieutenant rises to the top, right? Let's see who's uh, who does best if I leave them on their own. Um, the fact that they might fight against each other, he's not going to care so much, right? He knows he can bring them both into line when he comes home. Uh, and anyway, it would be a way of proving who's stronger and, and better, right? So, um, uh, so sure. So, okay. So he leaves them. So that's when both. So Gothmog is like, okay, let's move on to the invasion plan. So he's making the invasion plan, which leads to the Dagor Aglareb ultimately. Right. Uh, that is the final end of Gothmog's plan, which of course doesn't pan out really well. Sauron, meanwhile, starts the, the catch and release program. So, so those are the two things, the two initiatives that they're doing mm-hmm. and they're kind mm-hmm. of working together. Right. Especially with the Elder Latte subplot. And the uh, Anil, I am revealing the secrets of the of of the elves uh, and in helping to set up the battles and stuff. Um, that subplot too. So all of those subplots are in the first half of the season. Then we get the battle, and after the battle, so Morgoth comes back uh, from the corruption of men, and and just to find like all of the armies of the orcs destroyed, and he's like, oh great. Yeah, great. Put Gothmog in charge and look what happens. Um, <laughs> and so I would think that he would in the end, like Sauron basically wins. You know, uh, Sauron comes out of that as the more competent lieutenant of the two. It's clear right. that Gothmog's, uh, you know, iron fist approach is not panning out, at least not just with orcs. Right. So we need to we need to. So so Gothmog loses that exchange. He doesn't have to, like, get totally demoted. Um but thinking forwards to what's going to be happening next, it makes a certain amount of sense because the Dagor Aglareb is going to be the last of the great huge disasters for Sauron's or Morgoth forces. Most of the rest of the major initiatives in the war are going to go well for Morgoth, 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the Dagor, uh, in the Dagor Bragalach, uh, and the Nirnai Thornoidiad. So, um, I having him from then on using Gothmog primarily as a captain, right, on the field, uh, as we see him acting, of course, in the Nirnai Thornoidiad when he kills uh, Fingen. Um, uh, and he can certainly, we can have him involved in the Dagor Bragalach as well. Um, so from a military standpoint, things start going better for Morgoth when he takes over. And of course, what we see is that things are different, right? Um, in the later battles, we don't just have, and now another orc invasion, which is what the Dagor Aglareb is, right? And that can be sort of Gothmog's kind of dumb idea, but it's not a to I don't want to make Gothmug into an idiot, right? I mean, he's not, um, he's straightforward and just believes in, in force and strength, um, but he's not a moron, you know, and so we have the sort of subtle, pl- you know, the, the pincher movement thing that he's got with the orcs coming in from the north and, uh, and Sauron can come, see, and Sauron's plan, Sauron gets Eldolate involved in the Dagor Aglareb plot because he's, Ah, so see, Sauron is, uh, uh, Sauron comes out of it looking really good because Sauron is playing it both ways, right? If the orc invasion of Gothmog fails, he wins, right? Because it's obvious that his plans were way better than Gothmog's. But by involving some of his captured and released elves in the Dagor Aglareb plot, he also wins if it works, right? So then... If Gothmog's invasion plan works, he can be like, yeah, it worked because of my plot, my devious plot, which made it happen, right? So even if Gothmog's initiative works out, he still comes out, Sauron still comes out looking good, whereas Sauron um, looks even better if Gothmog's plan uh, plan doesn't uh, succeed. So uh, that seems to me like a cunning plan for uh, Sauron, but basically... The elves don't know about the super secret necromantic orc project, um, right? I mean, there can be hints and suggestions, maybe, but they never—he never got to unleash them. He never did That's anything right. with them. So, his name—you know—the name Sauron, which is given to him by the elves, uh, is, um. I think that needs to be given to him now in season four. They'll know, they will come to know that he is involved, that, that there is this evil, devious evil one who is in, who is behind all of these horrible plots that are uh, turning them. So, um, so they give him the name in the con. So at the end of the catch and release program, like in the midpoint of season uh, four, after the Dagor Aglareb, when they're like, okay, hey, we, we won, the, 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 the threat is defeated, right? And we've now proven that Morgoth can't come against us in arms. There will be those wiser ones among the elves who are like, okay, yeah, but we didn't defeat the really serious enemy, right? The really serious enemy is the one who's been doing this catch and release program, who's been corrupting our people and setting us against each other. And he is Sauron, right? And they give him the name. Um, and... Uh, so I so I do think we haven't had that before. We haven't had his name before, have we? Did we talk? I know we've talked about his name before. I don't think so. But I don't think we had a elves calling him by his name before. Um, anyhow, uh, so I'm thinking I'm thinking we can do that. 
So, yeah, so Morgoth comes back from Hildorian after the Dagor Aglareb and is like, okay, what's been going on? Oh, gr- go, great. All of my orc armies are destroyed. That's just fantastic. Thank you for that, Gothmog. <laughs> um, so, um, ah, okay, so um, uh, Marie says Gothmog gave it to him as a derisive nickname, right? Okay, I, I knew we talked about it then in some way. It would be, um, it would be cool. I think actually to have the elves like come up with it on their own, basically it's the same name, right? It's like they, they end up calling him. It's almost like, a, you know, like Baron, he called her by her elvish name, right? Like it's like that they, they, they like it, or maybe they can hear it. Maybe, maybe one of the orcs, they can hear it from one of the orcs or something, but in a, so they either adopt it. I kind of like the idea that they give it to him and it's the same name. Maybe that looks like too much of a coincidence to uh, not look hokey uh, in context of a of a production but anyway one way or another the elves it, it should come into circulation among the elves at this point in the midpoint of season four so morgoth comes back and it's like okay human beings corrupted worshiping me all is going well how are things going up oh good grief okay fine <laughs> back to the freaking drawing board uh in angband and that's when he starts in with the dragon plot right now um okay so uh yeah, Mariel points out that Gothmog is an Ainu, right? So there's no reason he can't occasionally have insight uh, into the song or the, of the future. Yeah, exactly. So his calling Sauron by that name is like he knows that Sauron is going to have that name, right? So um, yeah, I kind of, uh, I kind of, I kind of like that actually. But um, we'll see. I don't. We'll, we'll, we'll see what you guys. What do the discussion boards think about that? Whether we should have it like the name leak out or whether we should just have it be that Gothmog's naming of him was a prefiguring of the name that he was going to be given by the, by the elves, which I kind of like, but whatever. Um, okay. So then the last question, uh, and you know, if, um, let me just, let me, let me, let me close the Sauron in Hildorian question by simply saying, I am not completely I'm not immovably set against Sauron being involved, but I need to be convinced. If y'all want to still try to if somebody still wants to try to convince me, you can, but I need good reasons to think a why how this is not going to lessen Morgoth because I don't think Morgoth should be diminished yet. He is more than cunning enough and more than powerful enough to carry this off himself without having without needing Sauron's help. So I, I don't think, I think it's important that we have him not needing Sauron's assistance here. Um, and secondly, I want Sauron to be a fraud when he sets himself up later on. I, I think there needs to be an element of deception, both of others and even of himself, when he is setting himself up as the god king of the world uh-huh. later on. Um, and I don't see how we can do that. I, I think that we're undermining that. I think we're, we're, we're setting him up too far if we make him actually the deceiver um, who mm-hmm. has mm-hmm. that kind of instrumental role at the beginning. Yeah. Um, so anyway, convince me otherwise and we can, we can, I, I'm happy to reconsider, but that, those are the, those are the reasons why I feel pretty strongly about not having Sauron involved. Now this other question, uh, Funkil as cult leader in Hildorian. So he's going to leave. Morgoth is going to leave and neither Morgoth nor Sauron can hang around Hildorian for right they've got to come back to Beleriand they both have jobs to do so um, 
what's he going to do? Is he going to set up a king there? There needs to be somebody in charge. Funkill is the name of the evil sorcerer, shady dude who is involved in the corruption of man way back in the Lost Tales version of the story, if I'm recalling that correctly. Um, it was a, an early, one of the early like bad guy figures, uh, in a sense, a precursor of Sauron uh, in that, like, you know, one of these like, wizardly, vaguely necromantic kind of bad guy figures that uh, that Tolkien had way, way back. Um, bad guy figures who were not Morgoth. Um, so, um, I, that he would find somebody, like somebody conveniently immortal, rather than just having to rely on the succession, um, who could supervise things and become the kind of cult leader there uh, in Hildorian to keep them all towing the Morgothian line down there in Hildorian while Morgoth is away. That makes sense. Um, my uneasiness about Funkill, I mean, I have no necessary objection to bringing him in apart from the fact that he, like, we got to invent another character again. So my first question is always, can we do a conservation of characters here? Uh, again, in that if we if we try to cast not only every character in the Silmarillion, but every character that was ever cut from the Silmarillion, uh, our cast is going to become truly ludicrous. So is there an existing... I mean, we're, we've already added Tevildo back, right? We've already resurrected Tevildo uh, out of the cutting room, off the cutting room floor, right? So um, we've got a bunch of bad guy figures, right? And we, and so Bulldog and Tevildo both we've, we've rescued from the cutting room for floor. We could do that with Funkill as well. Uh, I would just want to make sure that we absolutely need him um, because it's a lot of people. Um, so the question would be a, do we absolutely have to have somebody in this role? Um, and B, could we spare someone else? Well, but let me think about that first question first. Do we need somebody in this role? And one step further with that, um, uh, what would be his ultimate outcome, right? If there is a sort of, you know, lesser spirit, right? Somebody on the, like, bulldog, Tevildo, Thuringuethil level, right? Um who is deputized to be the leader of the men in Hildorian, what happens to him? Where is he? Where does he go? Um, I mean, we're going to run into trouble if he's still around. Is he going to become Sauron's rival later on? Are we going to have a whole Funkill v. Sauron, you know, struggle for dominance in the continent when Sauron goes over there? Do we want to do that? I kind of think we don't. I kind of like the plot that we came up with earlier today when we're talking about Sauron having to go and reconvert the populace every few generations. Um, when they're remembering their, you know, they have the myths and stories and their traditions of the uh, the old fearful god that they were that they worshipped. Um, and we can kill him off, Murray, but if we kill him off, we've got to find a way to do that. He's not going to die of old age, right? So we, we've got we to find it. We, we've got to have a whole story then to kill him off. Um, and do we want a whole nother human, like far away, you know, still in the vague Hildorian region subplot where he somehow ends up getting destroyed? 
Um, so yeah, I mean, the other alternative, Murray, would be yeah, leaving a leaving a human king, right? Uh, that he would um, inspire. Okay, how about this? How about this? How about Morgoth d- thinking back to what I was thinking before about how the interaction with the Valar shapes and changes the humans into hobbits and druidine and whatnot? Maybe he would create a priestly caste among the humans of Hildorian, so he would bless a group of humans with longevity and power, right? And leave them in charge. And then we could have... So these would be like proto... uh, proto... Dunedine, right? Um who would be out there, who could survive. Um, they'd be kind of like proto-Dunedain and almost like, not exactly proto-Ringwraiths because he wouldn't make them immortal. Um, but the survivors or the the descendants, that's the word I'm looking for, the descendants of this like priestly race that Morgoth establishes to rule over the people of Hildorian um, could then become, uh, we could have descendants of them involved in later actions, right? Um, they could die out or almost die out, and they but they could have descendants who still pop up and cause trouble. And um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, that would work. That seems like a Morgothian kind of plan, wouldn't it? I mean, he would be because again, his whole pitch to the humans, which wouldn't be a lie. Like, in the sense that he'd believe it, right? He's not deceiving them. He's not just pulling the wool over their eyes. He would say, like, I have a vision for a better future, right? I'm going to, if you submit to me, then I'm going to make you into the, you know, you're, you're going to be awesome and you're going to rule the world. And and I'm going to order things th- at least partly through you. And so he would he would be like, okay, I'm establishing that. And Marie, let's have, we can use the name Funkill. Why not? Right. He would appoint a king. He would believe in monarchy. Right. So he would have a priest king. So he would he would bless this priestly. He would create the first sub race. Right. So he would bless this peace, priestly race who are like have. They they at least would be taller and stronger and they would. I don't know what they could do. I don't, breathe fire. I have no idea. They could they, they could have some kind of magic power. Right. Um, in their priestly duties. Light. Light. Oh, light. He's the king of light. Right. They should be radiant or like able to, yeah, like glow and stuff. They should have light. Um, They should be the priests of light. That's totally what they should be. And then, uh, and they have a, they have a priest king, right? Who is Fonkil, right? Fonkil is the name of the priest king uh, of them. Um, So uh, yeah, there you go. That's it. Okay, so we have that, and then this gives this is uh, kind of fun. So instead of having like dark, horned, evil-looking, uh, fire-breathing, wicked priests, right? We have like luminous, beautiful uh, uh, priests surrounded by a glowing white nimbus, right? Um, uh, which would be really impressive. Uh, and exactly, Tony, for the nights are dark and full of terrors and they're looking for light and they're searching for. And so the um, the split 
of the people of Hildorian, right? The Edain are the ones who believe that it's a lie. Like they see, like, okay, if if we've been blessed, if we're if this is why are we st- like they they they're still looking for an escape from death, right? They're thinking like, hey, okay, this is not better than before. They would so they're the ones who would who say that because they're looking for the true light, right? And they would say that the priests of light, this is not the true light, right? There is a there is a, a real light. There is there is you know light and life beyond you know off in the west, um, and uh, off they go, right? So then they they secede uh, and um, escape, at least the dominance of Fonkel, right? So. Um, Trish, we could have the Witch King be a descendant of Fungil, right? Oh, yeah, that's a really good idea. That could be where the sorcery, sorceress power and will yeah, yeah, yeah. the Witch King comes yep. from. Um, yeah, Marie, exactly. The priests don't have the light of the Silmarils, so there can be a, there can be, yeah, this, this sort of, this, there has to be this perception. It's not that the light isn't real light because it's real light in the sense that it illuminates stuff, right? But it's not the true light. Like there can be some, I think they have to have a vision. I think that the Edain have to have some kind of calling, right? There has to be something. Because, I mean, what are they comparing it to, right? All they've seen is Morgoth and Morgoth's light. They should have some, Iluvatar needs to give to the people of Hildorian some kind of, contrary vision, right? Some kind of seed of knowledge or memory or dream of a, a real and a true light, which is not the light of slavery and, you know, of the dominion of Morgoth. And some of them believe in the vision and dream and go to find it. And others, uh, others want to go in, uh, uh, others, you know, reject it and stay. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, Phil, I'm not making a direct connection between the magical abilities of those of the priestly cast here and of the Druidon. I'm just saying it's similar in the sense that they would be an, they would be the first of these human subraces made by the influence of Avala, in this case, Morgoth, right? Because if the influence of Avalar can make subraces, Morgoth has got to be in on that, right? Uh, in fact, he kind of has to have done it first. So it makes that makes a lot of sense. Maria, I do think he can make use of the Eclipse, uh, like in the tale of, I don't know, absolutely. But again, I would think that Morgoth would do that. I think he would show, he would reveal the Silmarils during the Eclipse, right? And what he would show them is that, like, the sun itself is a lesser light, right? He has the true light. He is the true light. And the sun itself, and then he would make like he can command the sun. Right. So that he would both be claiming his own supremacy over the sun uh, and how his light is better than the sun, because the light of the Silmarils is going to look amazing during the fear of the eclipse. Right. Um, And then he looks like he can command the sun and bring the sun back. So he is totally in charge of light, obviously. Um, So, yeah, Morgoth would totally be able to be able to 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 organize that. Um, Yeah. What's the mechanism of the. Vision, dream, message, are the Valar involved? I'm thinking Iluvatar does this directly. I'm thinking a dream, right? They have a dream. They have a, a sort of a shared dream. Um, when does the eclipse happen during season four? Well, um, 
it should be a total eclipse in Hildorian and only a partial eclipse in Beleriand. Um, maybe the partial eclipse happens round about the time of the Merith Adathat, right? There's, it's a portent and they're not sure what to make of it. It could be the result of a, it could be the result of a direct attack on the sun. Morgoth, okay, because remember, it's an eclipse, right? But it's not just like, it's not the moon. Um, because again, again, we're not, we don't have, we don't have round earth astronomy here, right? Um, so yeah, Marielle, exactly. I'm thinking about the attack on the moon, right? Um, uh, that we, we you know, we, we get in the Silmarillion an account of Morgoth's attack on the moon. So what if he planned, he, his, he plans to capitalize on that, right? So he's, he's doing both of the, both things at once. He's both, he's organizing the attack on the moon and he's organizing the, the seduction of the men of Hildorian. Um, and he capitalizes on the eclipse when it happens. Um, or we make it an attack on the sun directly instead of an attack on the moon. I don't think that just because it's an eclipse doesn't mean the moon has to be involved necessarily. Right again, we're not bound uh, to regular solar system astronomy here. Um, there's no reason that there couldn't be an eclipse that's caused by something else, like some shadow that Morgoth has attempted to uh, place between the Earth and the and the Sun. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, so. When does it happen? Yeah, I'm not quite sure. But I would think it would be visible, but not total. Like, it's, it's, he doesn't have the power to obscure the sun across the entire world. But he can create a blot, right, which will obscure the light of the sun over Hildoria, which is part of his plan, right? Um, and maybe. Maybe he's thinking that this is actually so. Maybe that's an experiment as well. So, like again, you know, Morgoth is way smart, way too smart to just be doing one thing at a time. So, at the same time that he is using this phenomenon to cow the people of Hildorian, this is also a pilot project, right? And he's seeing about how can I? Because of course, ever since the sun rose at the end of season three, he's been thinking like, what do we do about this? And the whole cloud. You know, localized cloud cover is kind of cool, but it's restrictive, right? So far better to be able to, if he can't destroy the sun itself, which he can't because he's afraid of Aryan, um, he could at least block it, right? Better to block it out further up, right? So it's an experiment that he's doing. It should be visible from Beleriand, but not uh, total, not a total eclipse in Beleriand. Um, and... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So they should see it and they can see it as a portent like, whoa, Morgoth's up to something. What was that? That was a little worrisome. Um, and they then also have to worry about um, they also then have to worry about does um, is, is this like is this, this a sign of worse to come? Like, does this mean that Morgoth is preparing to put out that sun, which uh, has been so uh, distinctly reassuring? Um, William asks, does, would this weaken Morgoth in any way? Yeah, I would think he'd have to put out some pretty big power to obscure the sun even briefly. Um, so, and maybe he doesn't do it because the, the drain on him is too much. 
Um, and Aryan overcomes it and he's a little scared of her. And that's how we can show him being scared of her. Right. Um, uh, you know, Aryan just, you know, Aryan destroys his. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of having him summon the sun and instead of him having end the eclipse on call, he obscures the sun. His plan is to obscure the sun and to keep it obscured, like indefinitely if he can. Um, and, and show them, or at least for, for, for quite some time, right? And then he shows them the Silmarils, and he has his really dramatic moment. Um, and then the sun comes back, and he's got to improvise, right? Because Aryan counterattacks, and Aryan obliterates the thing that he's put in place uh, uh, to obliterate, uh, to, to, to obscure the sun. And, and, you know, Aryan is clearly sending the message to him, like, you know, any day, punk, you try that again and we'll see what happens, right? And so we see he, he's, he's not going to go after Aryan again. Um, he is weakened. We see that, but the humans don't see it, right? He obscures it with the light. And, and, and he's smart, right? He's smart and he's wily and he's deceptive. And so he immediately turns it to effect and makes it look like he's resummoned the sun, right? Um, yeah, okay. Yeah, I like all that. Um, Marie, I love the idea of coming back to this. It would be really cool. In episode one of season five. To do the fall of man and Hildorian in more detail with an emphasis on the rebellion of the Adain, Right. Um, so that we're kind of teasing it here in season four. And uh having the bad guys kind of talk about it so we know what's going on and we can have a couple glimpses of it maybe, but we don't get really the full story. And then we do get the full story at the beginning of season five. Maybe we think about that, but anyway, not going to worry about that too much. Okay. This works. I like this. This is a good story. This is a good fall of man story. We're Uh we're coming up Uh with here. Uh I'm I'm thinking this, this is good. This is good. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, Tony's thinking that Aryan's counterattack looks like a massive solar flare. Yeah, no, we, we got some visuals. We can definitely work with that. Um, uh, mortality and disease connected or unconnected to the fall. Well, now there's the thorny theological problem, isn't it? Um, I think we go with the Aragorn solution to this problem. That humans are designed to be mortal. We just go with the published Silmarillion on that. Mortality is 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 the plan for humans. But it was not meant to be fearful, right? It was meant to be and it's like humans were meant to submit to death like Aragorn is eventually going to, right? Like the Numenorians do, so that we can show in Aragorn and in Numenor at the beginning a return to something like paradisal man, right? Um, that's in a sense what the definition of like the defining element of unfallen man is that willing, sort of cheerful, humble submission to death. Um, so the fear of death is very much associated with the fall. Um, and that doubt, that uncertainty, that fear is what Morgoth plays on and expands upon. Um, and their desire to avoid it, their desire to cling to this world and not leave it at almost any cost is going to be 
of course, what's going to be characteristic of humans and what is going to be the leading cause of trouble among humans for pretty much the rest. Um, so, Marie, yes, good. The Edain also fear death, um, but their fear of death is there. It leads them to, to seek answers elsewhere. Right. Um, because it's not panning out. Right. Uh, at first, the new subrace, the priestly subrace, uh, 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 the luminous ones, right, that Morgoth creates might appear to show promise for that because they, they will live longer like the Numenorians, right? They could live several lifetimes of the rest of the men, but eventually they do die, right? And so the fact that even they die, which maybe could be kind of hushed up, maybe the priestly class tries to suggest that they are immortal, and so they conceal the fact of their own deaths, even though their own deaths do come eventually. And so the truth of that comes out. Even they die. This isn't working. This is a lie. And so the Adine leave, right? Maybe that's how it works. I don't know. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. All right. This works. Man, we've gotten far deeper into this than I thought we would. I know. Yeah. I was thinking about that. Well, you know, we've actually identified a lot of stuff that has to be thought of now. Absolutely. In order to make it make sense in the future. Otherwise, yeah. we get out there and it's like, oh, crap. You know, we got to go back and figure yeah. out how to do this. And I know we've seemed to wander so, around and talk about the second and third age a lot. But when you're talking about men and I mean, we're putting things into motion that we're going to have we're going to be following through on at the yeah. know, all the way through the third age. Um, so, I mean, we have to be thinking about things like the ring wraiths and everything else um yeah so and people were asking about time yet we can have a few generations happen between the fall and the Adine, and the the rebellion of the adine right so that the, the 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 shared dream can be happening right this is um this is sort of uh um i mean again what we need to show in the fall of man is a recapitulation of uh, luvatar's message at the music right that like whatever Morgoth does, nothing that Morgoth, there's nothing that Morgoth does that will not redound to the glory of Iluvatar, right? So we need to show Iluvatar kind of undermining the fall of man in this way, right? Um, anyway, so yeah, a few generations happen before the Adine rebel and leave. And uh, we do, ha we're okay though. We've got time. We've got time for them to be able to... Um, uh, We've got time for them to be able to get to Beleriand by season five. Uh, first of all, because I don't think we've got to be super precise about how much time passes. I mean, I know the Silmarillion gives us dates, right? But we don't have to share those, right? It's fine. If we want to expand that time, we only give them an extra century. We can give them, we can, we can have the, the long piece be 500 years instead of 400 years. Who cares, right? Like who's going to... It's we, we never have we don't we don't have to have a ticking calendar, right, showing this stuff happening. What we're gonna get are several periods of time here in season four and five when a lot of time passes. And in fact, the second half of season four is gonna be a big one of that, right? Gondolin is being built and then established as a kingdom. Time passes, right? So the fact that we're gonna have vague time passing like that, I think gives us plenty of time to have the Adine get to Beleriand, right? So that when they show up at the beginning of season five, it doesn't feel weird. Um, exactly, Marie. Until the mortals arrive, time is fluid. Once the mortals arrive, we're on a much stricter calendar 
because uh, yeah, yeah. So so that that's all good. Yeah, that's all good. Yeah, the human beings are going to be inconvenient when it comes to that. Uh, uh, well, that or make it easier one way or another. Um, so okay, good. Um, yeah. So and and this is of course another advantage of having the Hildorian stuff chronologically occurring in the first half of season four, because it gives us the whole comparatively indefinite. We don't know how much time. Ex- I mean, that is, we can play with the amount of time that passes between the Dagor Aglareb and the, and the escape of Glaurung. Right. Um, so, um, uh, th- that, that is good because that, indefinite period of time while Gondolin is a building and Glaurung is a growing, um, we can have the men go a wandering, right? So that's all, um, that's all, that's all fine. Um, great. So, uh, that was a third of what I wanted to talk about today, which is awesome. (laughs) Since we're pretty much out of time, but no, we covered so much stuff here. Oh my goodness. Like we solved where hobbits come from. We didn't fully do the story. Well, no, but, but I we think, pretty much I think solved it was, where hobbits came from, right? Come and on. I do think this is the point in time to talk about that stuff. So yeah. it was unexpected. Unexpected, but, I think... but it's, yeah. So as soon as mm-hmm. Dave leaves, we're like, hey, let's answer all the mysteries about the whole rest oh, of the history. Oh, going to be so yeah. fun. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> let's hope Dave's on board with uh, with our plans here. Hopefully. Yeah. Um, whew, okay. Uh, so... We'll have to save dragons. Uh, and, and the last thing we wanted to talk about was Luthien. I'm about to say the dangerous thing, which is that I don't think it's going to take us that long to talk about Luthien. But um, ah! <laughs> so we'll see. Ladies and gentlemen, place your bets. Place your bets. <laughs> okay. Let me end with my big question about Glaurung. Here's the, or the problem. Here's the problem of Glaurung as I see it. Um. I think it's no problem at all. To, uh, it's a perfect time for Glaurung because when he, when Morgoth comes back from Hildorian and everything's, you know, the Dagor Aglareb has happened and all, almost all of his orcs are destroyed, he's back to the drawing board as far as his off- his offensive against the elves are concerned. He'll be happy with uh, what Sauron has done, and he's like, yeah, step up the suspicion and confusion. Let's do that thing. So that he that his response to that would be like, okay, drawing board, let's go, let's do, let's let's uh, we need something else in addition to the orcs. So he comes up with dragons. That all makes perfect sense. Um, here's my problem. My problem is why does Glaurung do what he does? Why does Glaurung escape? It seems dumb. Glaurung is really smart, right? Glaurung is a genius and wily and deceptive and a really good long-term strategist, right? So why, how can we make Glaurung go on his little teenage rampage, right? Um, Which seems clearly to be a stupid idea without it being a stupid, like whose stupid idea is that? How does that come about without somebody having a stupid idea? Uh, uh, Either Glaurung or Morgoth or somebody, I mean, it either has to be a premature you know, release of the strategy, right? Like, okay, the dragon's done. Let's go. And Glaurung goes out and gets his butt kicked. And they're like, okay, dragon's not quite done yet after all, right? So either it has to be a failure on that level or 
Glaurung's doing it on his own, right? And he's like, I think I'm ready. Let's go. And Morgoth is like, no, you idiot. You're not ready yet. And then Glaurung's like, I don't care. I'm going. And he goes out and gets his butt kicked, in which case he looks stupid. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure how to solve that problem. That's my biggest question with Glaurung is how do we make the attack of Glaurung happen without making the bad guys, including Glaurung, look foolish? So... That is the problem I would love to hear your ideas about uh, for next time because I haven't yet figured that out. I just I don't see my way out of that problem. There probably is one. Uh, I'm sure there is one, but I don't see it yet. So um, I, I very much crave your advice on that score. Um, we need to be thinking, of course, about dragons and how they work exactly. Um, uh do we have him working with raw materials like they did with the orcs, right? Starting with an elf template and warping those into orcs. Do we start with an eagle template and warp it into dragons? Um, how do we do that exactly? Um, or does he uh, breed it from an animal and then invest it with a spirit? So is it is it like a are dragons corrupted eagles or are they uh, beefed up werewolves like were blizzards or whatever? Um is that you know, we do kind of need to solve the origin question that way, um, one way or another. Um, uh, yeah, so I don't know. Um, those are the two prob- the two biggest issues that I see with Glaurung that we've got to sort out. And then um, we'll talk about Luthien. The question with Luthien is, what can we let her do? We want to involve her. We want to show that she's a big deal. We don't want her just to be eye candy. We don't want her just to um, kind of totally come out of nowhere. The fact that she's a big deal, we feel the need to establish that in advance, you know? And I think that that's, that makes a whole lot of sense. But we can't spoil her, right? We can't, we can't have her um, doing the thing. What she does when after she connects with Baron has to be significant, right? It can't just be like yet another adventure in the mighty conquests of Luthien. So um, we've got to kind of walk that line there. Uh, how do we, how do we make that work? So those are the two main, those are the main issues that we need to resolve. If we get through those, we can start the next task after we, that's the end of our big issue discussion, big plot um, stuff discussions here. Um, at the beginning uh, of this season, the next task will be to take all these things we've been talking about, to take our Gantt chart and make it into an outline. Um, uh, how are we going to cover all this stuff in what sequence through our 13 episode season? Um, maybe we can start thinking about that when we've been already a little bit right. We've got some of it uh, tucked in here uh, during our, uh, our rambling discussion today. Um so we got some things. I, I I feel a lot clearer, in, in fact, in my mind about the shape of the season, thinking about the first half and the second half and how they work together. Today's discussion really clarified that a lot in my mind, um, at least as far as the bad guys are concerned, which contains a lot of the, the good guy stuff. So anyway, mm-hmm. we'll start thinking about that if we get through Dragons and Luthien in time next time. We might not, though. We might spend all of next time talking about the Dragons and Luthien, in which case, fine. That's all good. <laughs> we are not in a huge hurry. Um, so, very good. 
with that, I think we're going to sign well, I don't off know. for today. I've got about maybe 30 more years of lucidity left in my life. So, <laughs> you That's know. Fine. still gives us time. We're good. Uh, okay. We're All good. right. I, I might not make it to the third age by that time, but okay. I figure, you know, we'll probably get to the War of Wrath by season 12 at the latest, I bet. <laughs> We'll make some stuff up in season two, but I don't think we're going to go that far. You know, I don't think we'll, I mean, a 25, <laughs> I think is perfectly fair. I bet we can get through the third age in 25. Seasons. You think so? Oh, all right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. yeah. Place your bets, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. And with that. So that's, <laughs> that's fine. Which means that by that trajectory, exploring the Lord of the Rings will finish before some film, in fact. That's what Tony just said. We have 20 more years of exploring Lord of the Rings. Well, exactly. No, according to, according to, so uh, we have uh, uh, evil Dr. Cannon, one of, who's a, who's a, uh, a scientist, um, uh, actually a Projected. PhD and, and, and uh, professor. No, he's, he's, he's done a statistical analysis of our progress in exploring the Lord of the yeah, Rings. I and his, that, yeah. He's calculated that based on our current pace, the pace that we've been on now for the last year and a half or so, um, uh, if we if we maintain the current pace, then we will finish the we'll, we'll get to well I'm back uh, by sometime late in the year 2031. <laughs> and then you got to go back to the prologue. And then we got to go back to the so prologue and stuff. Like so it'll be, it'll, it'll be a little bit after that. But I mean, then so if you think we're already in 2019 now, so you know it's. <laughs> If we only have 21 more seasons, that only gets us to 20, that gets us to all the way to 2040 in film film. So <laughs> I will probably finish exploring the Lord of the Rings before I finish film film. So you'll be grandpa. Go. You'll be going to your granddaughter's wedding. Something like know. that. Yeah. No, we, we, uh, we, it was funny. I was, I was, I, I was reading the post where evil Dr. Cannon was posting his statistics while I was in riding passenger in the car that my son was driving. Uh, and we were kind of joking about where he would be, you know, it, he's going to be, like almost, <laughs> my son's going to be almost 30 uh, when we, when we finish exploring the Lord of the Rings. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'll be I'd old, but I hope still lucid. Uh, but like I said, and then, then he'll have the job of going back and, parsing exploring exactly. or the rings as your son exactly. right yeah then he can then he can produce the make a whole career of, you know, know yeah history of exploring the lord of the rings and there you uh, go absolutely yeah <laughs> yeah or maybe like the natural you know like maybe my maybe my grandchildren will then be able to come after and actually produce the silmarillion film project oh there because, you go there you go because the silmarillion to be in the public domain by the time my grandkids grow well, up right. so there you go that's right oh gosh we can yeah. dream all right. Well, anyway, it was a good good session today. Absolutely. Even though Very Dave good. wasn't here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Despite Dave's absence, very good. I know Dave's going to be sorry to have missed this one. Anyway, so I we know. will be back two weeks. We're back on our regular schedule now, so we'll be back in two weeks. That is on the eighth of March. Will be our next session for Dragons and Luthien. Um, so thanks everybody for joining us. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.